Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. Well, I think I tried to fill this empty space when we separated because um, we were so intertwined. And I don't, I don't think you ever quote-unquote get over a soulmate or replace them. You just have different experiences. But I had to go through this whole um, soul-searching to find the part of me. I had leaned on him for so long, so I had to find parts of myself. And this is what the record's really about, finding my pieces. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Efren Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Donut Song from Tori's third album, Boys for Pele. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Welcome back to the Drive All Night Studios, where we're here to talk about Donut Song. I'm so ready. So am I. I'm so ready to never gain weight. I've suffered my whole life for this. <laughs> Eve has already told me I look like an eggplant. Because he's wearing a purple blanket. Is that the reason? <laughs> it had nothing to do with body shape. Okay, thank If you, you look like an eggplant, I wouldn't tell you. You just did. <laughs> I mean, you look like an eggplant because of the color. It's the essence of eggplant. Anyhow, welcome back to Drive All Night the songs of Tori Amos. Thank you for listening. We hope you're well. We're well as well. What's up, David? How's life? Um, life is pretty good. You know, it's a little, it's a little tricky post Halloween, but I'm, I'm making it through the post Halloween slump. I got the post Halloween blues for sure. It's funny that you say Halloween and not Halloween. Halloween. I knew as soon as I said it that you were going to comment on that. Interesting. Yeah. We've mm. spent a lot of time together. I know. <laughs> um, we're very excited to be here tonight talking about. Donut song because it is in my top 10 songs. Here we go. You go, girl. Oh my God, I love that so I much. I love it. I made that. <laughs> um, is it in your top 10? It's not, but I'm happy to support you in your top 10. Thank you. Eve. Yeah, it's your day. It's all about me today, <laughs> finally. And I never make it about myself, but tonight, finally. Uh, you deserve this. This is the first top 10 song that we've done together yeah. since you've been host of this yeah. show. And I've gotten to do at least two of mine, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Are there any other top 10 songs ahead of us? Oh, I know there are at least yeah. one. I For me? Name. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not me. Oh, David. <laughs> I know. It's a little sad. Oh, well, we should expand to top 20. That's fair. Because we've got a long road ahead of us. Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, we will be doing all of the songs of Tori Amos. <laughs> well, I'm super excited about this episode. I've been, you know, this is kind of what we've been working up towards in my mind. 
at least this is what Boys for Pele works up towards. This, to me, is the climax of the album. It's Boys for Pele's Quinceanera. Yes. At track 15. Track 15. She really becomes a woman. No, this to, like is, for me, where it all explodes. Yeah, the point of no return. Here Donut we go. Donut song is Donut the explosion. Song. Yeah. All right. I can't wait for this conversation. What, are you going to say, Hey Jupiter is where it all implodes? I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let you drive okay. all night, I guess. You want to talk about our amazing guests that we have on this episode, yes. David? Yes. We could not let Donut Song go by without a party, and we could not let Boys for Pele go by without interviewing George Porter Jr. Amazing. It's amazing, right? Yeah, really is. Yeah, we have a conversation with George Porter Jr. coming up later, and he's just the greatest. The greatest. We also have an interview with superfan Anthony Methvin, who's going to tell us what he thinks about Donut Song. It's a great episode. I know, it's chock full. Yeah. It's a Baker's Dozen. Has anyone ever interviewed George Porter Jr. about Tori Amos? That's, how could they not have? I know. But has anyone ever done it on a podcast? You could be the first. We could be the first, except we, I wasn't there. I know. <laughs> David had a scheduling conflict. I had to do it on my own. Mm. Mm. We should also talk about something very serious. Uh, Nancy Shanks has a GoFundMe, which we talked about on the last episode. And we did an interview with Beanie. Nancy Shanks is Beanie. And we did an interview with Beanie that we released, a special interview that we released in between episodes. It's on our podcast feed right now. You can go listen to it. You that guys, was, she's really the best. She is the best. And move over, Tori. She's our best friend now. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Sorry, we're stealing your, we're stealing your girl. <laughs> um, Nancy Shanks, she was awesome. She was so gracious and she was funny. And her GoFundMe is at GoFundMe.com slash ALS relief for Nancy Shanks and that's ALS dash relief dash for dash Nancy dash Shanks. Um, we are running a incentivizer and anyone who donates to Nancy Shanks GoFundMe until she reaches her goal will get an a special one-of-a-kind autographed beanie surprise. You're gonna lose your mind. You're gonna lose your mind. It's cute. It's funny. She's autographed them. They're great. So anyone who donates to her campaign until she reaches her goal will get one of these. So if you donate to her page and you listen to the show, please send us an email, songsoftoriamus at gmail.com with a screen cap and we'll we'll handle the rest. Any any amount gets you a special one-of-a-kind autographed beanie surprise. Mm. That's going to be great. <laughs> Let's play a cover, shall we? Yeah. This is a cover of Donut Song by a group called Electra's Tongue. You can find them on SoundCloud. And of course, we'll link to them in our show notes when we get those up. Take it away, Electra's Tongue. Thank you. 
I do remember when she recorded uh, the Donut song. That day was particularly fascinating to me. Because it started in the morning. She's like, oh, let's do an interview in the bathtub. So we went in, and we, we both got into an empty bathtub. She was on one end, I was on the other. And, and she was talking about what was going on in her head. And it was, it was difficult to follow it actually um, followed the narrative line and and yet the conversation was pretty interesting and I think there were times when I turned the camera off because it just wasn't appropriate to run and and then she got up and she went into the piano room and she looked like she was possessed a little bit she had quite an inspired look in her eye and she sat down she, she actually first stood at the piano and started writing out lyrics and I I believe that I captured that pretty well. And then she sat down at the piano and I heard her say, Hey, Mark, can you roll, please? And she sat down and she played the donut song. And that was one take. And that, it's like she wrote that song somewhere between waking up, getting in the bathtub and walking to the piano. And and I loved that moment so much. I wanted to make a a very autonomous little piece about it. And And I love that song. I think it's really quite beautiful and and the sun was just streaming in in the room and the really beautiful uh, dark and saturated and bright color combinations of paint on the walls and the piano there and the red hair it was just it was a really amazing moment it sounded fantastic I am already regretting our decision to record this episode in the bathtub. <laughs> Eve was like, your choice, shower the bath. And I was like, bath, I guess. <laughs> that was, of course, a clip from the Nancy Bennett interview that we did on the Cornflake Girl episode. I held on to that clip for, what has it been now, two years? I held on to that clip because I thought, wouldn't that be a nice little nugget for the Donut Song episode? It was worth waiting for. It was, I thought so. It was the motor maids of Drive All Night. Right. <laughs> It was scrapped yeah. initially, but it eventually saw the light of day. So Donut Song, A, um, it appears on Boys for Pele as track 15, and then it has a variety of other appearances in Tori's catalog, um, starting with it reappears on the Fade to Red video collection. During the credits, you can hear a remastered version of Donut Song, which apparently was supposed to be a bonus track on Tales of a Librarian, but it did not make it for one reason or another. <laughs> Um, It appears again on the official bootlegs in 2005 from the show in Los Angeles. It appears three times on the legs and boots in Houston, Vancouver, and San Diego. It appears on Tori Amos, A Piano, The Collection in 2010. An alternate mix. And of course, resurfaces on the Boys for Pele Deluxe Edition. So what do you think of Donut Song? What are your feelings? I what you think about it. I love it. This isn't my number one song, but I feel like there's no other song in her catalog that I've grown up with, changed with, and my perspective on the song has changed along with me changing, yet I still love it. Because, I, you know, when I first heard the song, you know, yes, I'm ready to tear these men apart, or as Daniel Christopher Thomas said on our last episode, eviscerate these men. But now I don't look at it really as a song that eviscerates the guys. My perspective on the song has changed as I've grown up. But it's still a good friend. A great friend. Yeah. One of the best friends I've ever had. When's the first time you heard Donut Song Eat? Well, 120 minutes. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do, of course. Did you watch it as it aired? At like one in the morning or whatever it would have been. Yeah, I watched yeah. it the very first time I came on in. God, you were staying up that late in high school? Yeah, I was obsessed with all things Tory at that time, of course, and still clearly an argument could be made today that I am Maybe. haven't changed. 
but yeah, that 120 minutes performance was phenomenal. We'll play a little bit of it later, obviously, but it was moving in a an amazing way. Mm-hmm. I remember that was at a point where I was not just like living willy nilly like you were. So I would like set the VCR to record overnight. And then wake up to watch it the next day and have that to look forward to. So I didn't know what I was in for when I got that 120 minutes interview. But yeah, that performance. Yes, we'll get into it a little bit more. But shall we get into the quotes? I'm ready. Um, this is from Making Music in January 1996. She says, there were so many things that I did not allow myself to do when I was in this relationship. And I think Eric would tell you the same. All sorts of things, you see, which you can be finally honest about. Like Donut Song, the last I worked on. There's a bittersweet quality about it. There's a sweetness to becoming a woman that the virgins don't have. They have a physical sweetness, but once you claim the woman, yes, I want to wring their necks sometimes, the men. Yes, I want to wring their necks sometimes, those I fall in love with. Yet there's much more of an understanding. What do you think she wasn't allowing herself to do in this relationship? Um, well, she's talked about it for 14 tracks. Be, <laughs> claim her fire. Well. <laughs> Be whole. She wasn't allowing herself certain things, certain sides of herself to access certain freedom. I think that's how I take it. What do you think she was trying to do, David? Yeah, I'm sure that's just another way of saying that she was leaning too heavily on someone else for support as opposed to being a whole person. Mm-hmm. I guess as opposed to a schedule of things she wasn't allowed to do. Which right, is, yeah. yeah. Like, don't wear red. Don't Uh, invite Beanie over. Right. (laughs) No girls nights, (laughs) unless I can come. But yeah, the sweetness of, there's a sweetness to becoming a woman that the virgins don't have. They have a physical sweetness, but once you claim the woman. The woman. The woman. I do kind of see that quote in the song. There's a point of no return in the song where I feel she can't go back and she can't even look at it the same way anymore. Like Mm -hmm. she's going to be okay from here on out. That's a little bit of what I think. Do you feel like Hey Jupiter, for example, is taking place kind of in real time, whereas when we get to Donut Song, she's looking back a little bit more? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what gives the song its bittersweet quality, is that she's revisiting the same situation or relationship, but a little bit further Mm -hmm. down the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jupiter is very much about being in stasis, like it's a frozen song, even the piano mimicking the dial tone mm-hmm. it's just you are in that moment you're stuck there is no moving forward or backwards in that song it's just a picture of where you are whereas this is even in past tense the lyric is looking back hit us with a quote david this is from the home news and tribune september 27th 1996 if you're living a full life pain is one of the colors on the palette it's one of the things that makes you remember you can feel one of the things Humor is another thing. They all work together. When you negate any of these emotions, then you're not working with a very complex palette. You're just working with a couple of colors. I put this here, I think, because there's a a lot of pain in the song. And I certainly have related to the song from a a place where I've been in pain. Mm -hmm. So I felt when I was going through quotes, this really rang true for me in this song. Well, I think a lot of the reason why we're drawn to Tori's music is because she confronts her pain head on not that it's about wallowing in your pain but a lot of people do a everything they can to avoid feeling pain period or try to convince themselves that they're not experiencing anything painful whereas tori's about working through it tori is very good at acknowledging exactly how she feels i think and has helped some of us be able to to do the same and to be like a fully formed person living 
the the breadth of the human experience, you have to acknowledge that there's going to be pain, there's going to be humor, and and all of that. And I guess for some people, that's just too much, too much. You allow yourself to feel the pain and process the pain, and then the joy is greater eventually. Mm. I hope. <laughs> we hope. God. <laughs> We've heard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Break Magazine, August 14th, 1996, Tori says, I had to write Boys for Pele in order to even walk outside of the house by myself. It has been for me the shattering of a fantasy or a dream. Um, And then she says this about her breakup with Ross. Amos's work is what remains of this reality. With this album, she says, I finally discovered what complete creative freedom feels like. Amos said, while the points of reference might be more obscure on Boys for Pele than on her previous releases, it is an album that has a universal undercurrent that can only be fully appreciated, quote, when you know what it is like to crawl. She added that, quote, you have to know what it is like to feel desperate for somebody else's fire to really understand this record. I've been desperate for someone else's fire. (laughs) I'm serious. And that's where I relate to the song. Mm. Do you feel like you've broken out of that cycle? Yes, I do. Did that just happen naturally or did you have to put some effort into it? I think I had to put a lot of effort into it. And honestly, it happened doing this podcast. This podcast has helped me see things a different way and helped me, you know, especially going through Boys for Pele for so long. That has happened over the course of this podcast? I think so. I had a breakup right after we started doing the show. Mm. I had like a really bad breakup after we started doing the show. And so throwing myself into the work of the podcast and also listening to her quotes about this particular time in her life felt like I was going through it. I was I was going through what she was going through. And like by the time she's doing this press for this album, she's kind of in her, her healed place and mm. she's reflecting on it. And it's, it helped, at least for me. It's interesting too to hear her say with this album, I finally discovered what complete creative freedom feels like. And I say that because their lives, meaning Sheer and Eric, were so intertwined that they were co-producing her albums together. And, you know, they co-produced Under the Pink. So... Not only does their personal relationship end, but their professional relationship as well. And this is her first time sort of out there. I don't know. What would she say? On the edge of the cliff <laughs> right. by herself right. in all aspects of her life, including as producer and sort of, you know, making all of the decisions about how her music was going to sound. So she did a good job. Good job, Tori. You want to talk about the liner notes from the deluxe edition? Yes. This is from the Boys for Pele deluxe liner notes. The Bally William House is an old Georgian house on a tall hill over the river. It feels like you can see forever and sometimes when the fog rolls in. You can stand on the precipice and think there are people standing around you on those hills from 2,000 years ago, lighting those fires for the summer solstice. I was drawn into this hypnotic space where you wouldn't know if you were in the 20th century. It was disorienting, but instead of my guard going up, I was open to whatever was out there. And this song romanced me. Mm, That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're going to get into the recording process a little bit later, but this has a very interesting recording process, a very unique recording history. So I think that that quote will make a sense a little bit later. The song Romance, because the song wasn't supposed to be on the album. Mm. The song was originally a B-side, was one of the original recordings that she gave to Steve Caton. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. We'll get into it. Um, from The Village Voice, February 13th, 1996. Here's this little bit. For Amos herself, it's into the fire. While Amos continues to throw darts at father figures, claiming privileged access to the heavens, this time around we find out that Jesus was a girl. Those indictments have developed a streak of self-implication that renders them more complex. Father Lucifer, Hey Jupiter, and Donut Song, and maybe putting the damage on, all address a patriarchal ex-lover in terms similar enough to suggest the character in the same throughout, shape-shifting only slightly from Lucifer to Jupiter to the man in Donut Song who, with his new wife, gets to be a son with a devoted satellite. 
pause because I think it's kind of reductive to say with his new wife. It's much more complex than that. Amos has said that the major theme of Pele is the problem of women stealing men's fire, and here that seems to be figured in the image of woman as moon. Tori's less convinced that the moon's worth worshipping this time around, even if the donut image does cleverly suggest the real stuff's at the periphery, with a big zero inside. A key shift might be Amos's recognition that her frustration with these men isn't simply repulsion at their patriarchal ignorance, it's that she wants to attain those celestial heights. Hence, she addresses herself as frequently as she does the guys in these songs. There's also a new heightened theatricality. Well, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> I think there's some good things here. A key shift might be Amos's recognition that her frustration with these men isn't simply repulsion at their patriarchal ignorance, but that she also wants to be that. That's the spine of the album. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the key. So they got there in the end, Yeah, <laughs> I guess. I take exception to some to some of these other reads, like Father Lucifer, Hey Jupiter, and Donut Song, and maybe, putting the damage on, they're willing to say, maybe, I'll address a patriarchal ex-lover. I don't... Mm. They, they read the press release, and they're like, right. every song's about this man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think she's referring to Eric when she sings Father Lucifer. Absolutely not. Yeah. And they really hooked into the term patriarchal. They peppered that throughout this, yeah. just this well, paragraph like five times. But uh, I mean, I think at the heart of it she's addressing these men but it's always through her lens like the lens of herself Mm -hmm. she's always always talking to herself and always it's very self-reflective it's not just about i mean she's talking to the men and she's kind of acting out and lashing out in some moments and then forgiving in others and then showing compassion in others but it's always about her journey i absolutely agree and if there are moments where she's questioning the way someone was treated or how a relationship ended or whatever it was what it always circles back to is what was it about me that either a let this happen or sought it out not let it happen in the sense that there's victimhood but like why was i repeating this pattern over and over and over and what was i looking for and it's always about her in my opinion and not not the men Agreed. it's like the walking dead the zombies yeah. are just the backdrop right the men are just the backdrop on this album but it's right. really all about tori's journey Agreed. like we can just swap these guys out trent eric just another zombie who like cares? who cares <laughs> <laughs> oh i can't believe you said the word trent sorry I told you never to bring him up <laughs> From Vanity Fair, again in 2016. Don't, and you know, this is the article where it's like, what are they doing now? The songs, where are they? She says, oh, she's hanging out in Ireland, having some s'mores by the fire. She needs to exercise a lot, but she stays fit and keeps busy hiking those moons. <laughs> she's let herself go. She sure has. <laughs> would you go camping with Donut Song? Hell yeah. You would? <laughs> Hell yeah, i go camping with Donut Song. I wouldn't even take my cell phone. I would go glamping with Donut Song. No. Wrong girl. I think that's how Donut no. Song would, gl- would go. No. No? You're wrong. <laughs> You're so wrong. <laughs> Donut Song has a hair tie on her wrist, ready to put in a ponytail any moment. You're talking about 96 Tori. I'm talking about Donut Song. I'm talking about Donut Song. I'm not talking about Tori. I'm talking about Donut <laughs> Donut Song. Donut Song wears a scrunchie? D- Donut Song wears a hair tie. She's got torn jeans. Yeah, she's hardcore. Okay, she's no nonsense. This is your song, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna listen to you. I mean, that's how I see her now. She's been, she's all things. She can dress up though. She is me. <laughs> she cleans up nice. Yeah, she, she can cleans dress up, up right. <laughs> Donut song is me. I think. Breaking news! You ripped it from my headlines. Mm. <laughs> now let's talk about the recording process. We okay. Teased it a little bit, but now we're ready to go full mm. swing. Um. So Caton got a tape of not demos, but like songs to like get him into the feel of the album and this was one of those songs from virtual guitar october 99 how did you get the effect referred to in boys for pele liner notes as ha ha guitar 
on Donut Song. Ha ha. And he says, I used an Ernie Ball volume pedal and some delay. Who cares? But important thing is, <laughs> <laughs> the song was originally a B-side. Tori wanted me to start with Beyond the Pale, the original Donut Song title, to ease my way into the Pele project. I wonder if she was referring to it as the Pele project. She was happy enough with the end result that she put the song on the record. I tend to use a volume pedal quite a lot in my playing to achieve different things. I've been using one for so long, I cannot imagine playing without one. It is central to many things that I do. Anyway, I coined the name Haha Guitar because I thought it sounded a bit like laughing. But it's really a throwback to Eno Records. He has all kinds of funny names for his sounds. Insect Menace from the song African Nights on Bowie's Lodger recording being my favorite Eno sound label. Interesting. It was called originally Beyond the Pale. And it was the first song she wrote for Pele, or one of the early songs. One, okay, you're right. You're right, because Blood Roses was. But it was one of the early songs that he received, already marked as a B-side. Mm-hmm. The last song she worked on for the album. Yeah. So it had a huge journey. Thank God it's on the album. Yeah. I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent here, or, you know, correct correct anything. But I thought she said this was actually the last song that she wrote Yeah. for the album. Oh, the last song she wrote for the album? Yeah, that it came at the end, and... There's another... There's another In the sorry. quote that we read earlier, it says she, the last song she worked on. I think she actually says it was the last song she wrote, where? Too. Point me, point me to that. We don't have it, but there's another mm-hmm. interview oh, where I think she's speaking, because I can hear it, and she's like, you know how it is, girl, sometimes you're not done. Like, this is the last song that came to her. Oh, for this we project. have that quote, and I don't think she means wrote it. Maybe you're right. I've lived my whole life believing that this was an early song that made its way into the album because it just couldn't not be on a record. Well, what we do on this show is tear down your old beliefs about yourself. That's true. And ask you to... That's true. And ask... <laughs> to change. Reassess who you are. Right. So... Maybe you're right, but I feel like this was a song that she wrote early, put to tape early. Caton, because he got it wherever he was in LA, was working on it before he even went out to Ireland, went out to Ireland, recorded the guitars for it, and then... In the quote that she says, Donut Song, the last I worked on, there's a bittersweet quality about it. The last I worked on, not the last I wrote. So that's what I, I think like she didn't expect it to be anything. And then she worked on it at the end and felt like, well, this is the end chapter of the Pele recording era. How could it not be on the record? That's what I think. Yeah. I I could be wrong. For for some reason I'm remembering, and I guess because I've always been fascinated by that idea that of this whole era, this was the song that came last and that after everything she'd already written, she still had something left, left to, say. to say. Oh, I like and that that too. it was this song. Yeah. Okay, I like that. <laughs> Either way, we, we've we got gold here. <laughs> if it's my way or your way. Put that on our list of questions for Tori Amos Tour 2020. In Spin, you want to read the Spin quote from March of 96? Yes. Okay, then. <laughs> With Katen, we talked about Donut Song and the swirling. The idea of girls on hands of men and underneath men are slates of material that open up. And there are women underneath them on the backs of cattle. And above the girls that are on top of the hands of men, there's something pouring into their water jugs. Those are the pictures I get when we're trying to find a sound. And it's funny because the guys go, here we go again, Tori speak. She she loves that, though. She does. She's like, ding. <laughs> Citrus. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what the funny thing about that is? When she talks about Caudalite's knees in the brain, I actually, like, that makes yeah, sense to that me. that does make sense. <laughs> but this girls on the hands of men and yeah. underneath men, I don't get it. Cattle. Girls on the hands of men. Like, 
I mean, I can kind of hear it maybe, maybe I'm being too literal, but in the layering of this song and we'll say the ha-ha guitar because that's mm-hmm. what the way that it kind of winds around. I don't know. Like I can, I can sort of back my way into this conversation. Okay. The takeaway for me from this quote is the shorthand that she had with Caden. Like she could just say girls on the hands of men and cattle with jugs. And he's like, okay, here you go. And it becomes amazing. Mm -hmm. Like that shorthand I miss so much. This dark energy. Like they had a great energy that created such dark, wonderful music. God, I loved it. (laughs) You want to read that one from Mix, November 96? Yes. It was her idea to record in a church, Holly recalls. Ireland was just a nice place to do it. We went around to 10 or 15 churches, but we didn't have a lot of time to make up our minds. And it was this one that sounded the best. But it did surprise them in one way. When we went there, it was really quiet. But realistically, there was a really busy road right down from the church. So I can hear the cars on the album, on a couple of tracks. They're very, very quiet, but I can hear them. The new album possesses a warmth that can be attributed to both the acoustics of the church and the overall recording setup. You can even hear the hammers hitting the strings in the piano. It's an intimate feeling that Amos wanted to capture. Like when I try to stick my head inside the belly of the piano, she states, or try to stick my head inside the harpsichord. I wanted you to hear it how I could hear it. The piano hopefully goes inside your stomach. When you put it on a decent hi-fi, you should be able to crank it up and it should just crawl into your capillary. I love it. And I challenge anyone out there to find the cars on the album. Yes. (laughs) Have you heard any? Well, I've desperately, since I found that quote, I've desperately been looking for the cars Mm -hmm. and the guitars. But it never was. But it never was. I couldn't find, but I think there's one on this song. I have heard people say that they can hear like a motorcycle or something in the distance on, (laughs) ironically, I guess, or coincidentally, motor maids. Oh. But I've not, I've tried, try as I might. I don't hear anything, mm, and I don't think I've heard any any cars on this album. Well, I'm going to go through and do a car check. Mm. I'm going to go and try to find the cars on the album mm-hmm. before the wrap-up episode. But as for the intimacy, I mean, no question that mm-hmm. she managed to accomplish that. And I abs- that's, of course, one of the things that I love about the album is that you can hear the, the hammers hitting the piano yes. strings, or I guess more specifically, the unplucking mm-hmm. of the harpsichord, like mm-hmm. at the end of... Blood Roses, yeah. when she releases the keys, it, you can hear the mm-hmm. clink. And I love that that's all I love there. It. <laughs> I love it's all there. Yeah, I love that it's all the texture of the location is there, the way it sounded as they were recording it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't trying to be perfect. Like she kept in all those little things. It's been so long since you did the backing vocals from Connelly's <laughs> knees and run your hand through your hair. Yeah, we've moved on. I I haven't. I'm no longer that girl. God. It's over. I've been wasting all my time. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the bridge, which is, we're going to get to it in the line by line here in a second, but it's my favorite part of this song. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about the Mandela effect? Yeah. Okay. So we are doing this episode with the help of uh, one of our researchers, Rachel. Um, she's on our research team. She's amazing. Um, and she put this document together. As I was reading through the document, I knew, like, there's this quote that's out there. There's this quote that's out there that I had in my brain and I couldn't find it online. And I said to David, hey, do you remember a quote where she talks about the bridge of the song, forcing her will onto the song by putting this bridge into the song, but then the songs have a way of knowing 
what's not supposed to be there. And now, now she's blocked and she can't play that bridge mm. live. And she was talking about the something's just keeping you numb part. Yes. So I said to David, do you remember this quote where she talks about like forcing this bridge into the song and now it won't come live? And David said, yeah, he remembers. He, you remember it? I do. I absolutely know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. We couldn't remember if it was written or if we heard her say it. It could be, I, I have a memory of her saying it, but it could be read and I was just hearing mm-hmm. it in her voice. But we have this mutual uh, memory of this quote. Yeah, and even more specifically, I feel like what she's addressing is letting the song tell her what it wants right. to be as opposed to her sort of asserting her, her will, will yeah. onto the song. And she gives Donut Song as the example. Yes. Like, this was the last time when I forced this bridge and this lyric into the song, even though I knew right. that the song... I didn't... just wanted to put it in because yeah. I had it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to hold it. Or like that was my point of view that I wanted in the song or whatever attachment she had and that she regretted it and knew that it was wrong and that therefore she wouldn't or wasn't it performing it live. It, could, it wouldn't come. She right. was blocked against right. it. Right. So yeah, we both have a very, very strong memory of that. And then we were like, oh, well, certainly we'll have no problem digging up this quote right. because we both remember it so clearly. Yeah. So we both spent a week searching the internet. And I you don't know not, what? I'm, <laughs> Time well spent, I still say. <laughs> so my relationship has fallen apart. Well, Big deal. <laughs> we spent a whole week looking for this quote in various forms. We would type it. I typed in literally the word bridge site colon the dent dot com and looked through every page where the word bridge was mentioned. The word bridge. Like I went far. I went to the dark web. I've seen things that I can't unsee. We managed to buy a new kidney, but no sign of this quote. But what I did find was this review by Rain Butterfly from a 2001 show. And she says, whoever Rain Butterfly is, says this. One thing that is different about Donut Song now, as opposed to the 96 version, is the bridge. In 96, she had some kind of block that she couldn't get past when she played the bridge live. She couldn't do that part from the studio version where she goes, something's just keeping you numb. So blah, 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 blah. So that person has this collected memory as we have. So we know that we're not making it up. So the Mandela effect is some, when you share a collective memory of something that appears to not have happened, Mm -hmm. like how everybody believes that Nelson Mandela died in like the eighties, but then he was alive and well. And so when he died, people were like, wait, he's been dead for years, but he wasn't. So it's called the Mandela effect. Mm -hmm. So David and I are experiencing our own Mandela effect. And to put it more in my language, everyone remembers or seems to remember that in Poltergeist, the house was built on an Indian burial ground, but there was no mention of an Indian burial ground. Really? See? Weird. <laughs> it's happening now. Oh yeah. my God, I hate that movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so therefore, I know this quote exists. I know this part of the song was forced onto the song in a way and sticks out from the song, at mm-hmm. least in the organic nature of the song. Um, it fits in the song in my mind, but I don't think it's not right. That's just a little history of the recording process mm-hmm. and how... Even though we couldn't find the quote, and we searched, and I'm, we searched, believe me. But while we were searching, we found some things about the bridge that I want to talk about. You want to read the first quote from Us Magazine, David? Yes. This quote is from Us Magazine, December 1996. Amos's lyrics are as inventive as her speech, and she often counters the more heavy-duty imagery in her songs, blood, Christ, crucifixion, with Dr. Seussian rhymes like tuna, rubber, a little blubber in my igloo. I'd like to think that my work has multidimensionality, says Amos, that I can change a pair of shoes in the middle of the song, and it's okay, that there is no structure that says I have to wear the same pair all the way through, and as long as I've got feet, it's all right. That's very bridgy. Yeah. Yeah. Something that's just keeping you numb has a whole different set of shoes on. 
I guess. I feel like that quote is more apropos if we're going to talk about her later work. I mean, um, we will. I mean, I feel like in Starling, she doesn't change her shoes. Her legs get amputated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From Keyboard Magazine, November 1994. Now here, so I went deep into 95, back into 94. I was going through all of everything to find this quote, right? And this is the closest I found. She says, do you want to play the interviewer? Oh, yeah. From Keyboard Magazine, November 94, she says, Bridges have always been my strength, but sometimes the rest of the song is like pissing in the wind. The land masses on either side of the bridge ain't so great. I've got my Coleman stove and my little jacuzzi on the bridge because sometimes there ain't nothing on either side. Does the bridge often occur to you first before you've even got the main theme of the song? Believe it or not, David, sometimes I just write bridges. I'm writing a piece and it becomes a bridge. How can you tell that a piece of music you've got is a bridge rather than an embryonic chorus or verse? Because, David, it just wants to occur at that place. The great thing about a bridge is setup and payoff. For instance, right now I know I have a chorus of something. Now this is Remember 94, after Pink, before Pele. For instance, right now I have a chorus for something. I've just started writing something for the next album, and this came to me in a dream form. I pulled my own hair to wake up and remember it. It was like Evan Dondo at my piano, but it looked like Anthony Kiedis, and it sounded like George Michael. When I woke up, I wondered if I had to give him publishing. It says she laughs. Now I know this is a chorus, but I've set it up seven different times. I know the chord it needs to come from. It's like... I don't smell the apples baking in the oven unless I come from this place. And yet the thing that I'd written for this place, I've given to another song because it isn't right for this. You see, sometimes you can't be analytical. It's like, I hate that fucking bitch. And if you put me next to her, I'm going to mutiny. So the different parts have personalities. They have souls. They're very real to me. I'm just translating them. They already exist somewhere. All right. Well, cutting through all of that, if we even can, I do love that glimpse into her creative process and that sometimes she really tends to mystify it Mm -hmm. and other times she's very real about it and in this case it does it's clear like sometimes how much work is involved and that she has all these different pieces of all these different things and that she's kind of like rubik's cubing them like yeah. turn 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 i love that this doesn't really go here that's not that's not a good metaphor legoing tetrising i don't know well she talks there's another quote about a bridge which i didn't put in the document but you know, when I was looking for the bridge quote that we were looking for, and if anyone can find it, if anybody knows what we're talking about, you can find it out there. My God, we'll send you a toy collectible. That big bucket that is right there has toy collectibles in it. Um, <laughs> you need a better filing system. I Get a big do. bucket. Where do you keep your <laughs> valuable collectible? Right. In the trough. Right. <laughs> um, there was another quote where she said, like, she can work on something for like a week and it just becomes, a, it ends up being a bridge. And then the song itself takes like nine months to like form around it. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting to me. And then me there's too. another quote where she says, I have all these other pieces, like, and I sit on the floor with them all around me. And I figure like, what's the bridge for this song? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really exciting me as a too. creative person myself. I know. And I don't want to jump ahead, but at some point she said that like Jackie's strength in a hotel started as the same song and i'm like what What parts of what yes like what part of hotel was ever a part of jackie strength she describes them as like siamese twins or something that she had to separate right wow shook we're done you know what i used to love about donuts david the holes no the guy who would wake up at 4 a.m to make the donuts do you remember to make the donuts yeah what commercial was that winchell's or dunkin donuts but we didn't have dunkin donuts here so it probably wasn't Donuts. yeah what do you think about the placement on the album I mean, within this album, I almost... I'm thinking that maybe Hey Jupiter, Donut Song, and Putting the Damage On are like a mini trilogy Okay. within this album. Okay. So this is part two yeah. 
Um, and she goes back to look at it one more time. Mm -hmm. And with, I I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit and we'll get there, but with putting the damage on, there's like a little bit more of an ability to look at all of the wonderful things that they had together or the place that that relationship brought her to. And she's looking back at it more fondly. And there's still a little bit of working through the, the anger and angst here with Donut Song, I think. I can see those three songs being especially linked in the narrative of this album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Blood Roses, Caudalite's knees are linked in a way. Mm-hmm. Okay. In that way, you think? I think that's a good place to start. I think we normally get a little more clarity when we go through the line by line. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should... Let's do it. We should get into that. Yeah. Should we do the line by line, David? Let's do it. All right. Hand me a trick and a kick and you So a trick, a sexual fling, a romp, mm-hmm. a kick... A good time. A good time, yeah. What about your message? Is the next line the message? You'll never gain weight from a donut It's possible. I kind of think so. And I'm already wondering who the players in this song are. Who's delivering this message? Mm-hmm. Had me a trick. So she's. it's autobiographical. She's talking about herself, right? I had a trick. I had a kick. Mm-hmm. I, the narrator. I, the woman who's going through this journey Mm -hmm. and your message at the beginning we can only assume it's the ex-lover if the message is you'll never gain weight from a donut hole i see that as like on a note scribbled on a piece of paper after he's taken all his stuff out of the apartment and he's left a piece of paper on the counter and it says you'll never gain weight from a donut hole so happy valentine's day to me it reads as like a final goodbye from someone Mm -hmm. if that's the message Admittedly, Tori has said that she was doing some not so great things Mm -hmm. at a certain point in her life. And there's reference to a love triangle. Mm -hmm. So maybe someone, you know, cheated on someone. So I can't help but think that maybe there's a little bit of that being referenced here with a kick and a trick, whatever she may have had going. A kick implies it was fun while it lasted. Mm -hmm. Trick implies that it was brief. Mm -hmm. Nothing meaningful. And the message is... You'll never gain weight from a donut hole. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, that here on on Sneeze and Donut Song, there are references to something that's of little to no substance that's not feeding you. Because a donut, we all know what a donut is, and a donut hole is actually... I better eat one just to be sure. Right. <laughs> a donut hole is another treat itself, which is mm-hmm. like a round, cakey mm-hmm. donut, but I think there's wordplay. God, I wish you could not gain weight from a donut hole. She's not talking about a sack of donut holes right. she picked up. On right. She's, She's talking, talking about the, the absence of, of something. Yeah, the yeah. absence of The actual substance. hole of a... Yes. <laughs> yes, the hole of a donut. I'm wondering, too, if I'm feeling mock. Mock. I'm feeling Leslie. If there's a little bit of Mark coming through here with this message, maybe. Could it be that he's the one delivering it? Backstage, when he tells her, what are you doing with these men yeah. that aren't honoring you? Yeah. You, are, you deserve much better. Right. Why are you letting yourself be treated like this or whatever it is? Then thought that I could your message. It's funny that she uses the word message a second time here. This was in the past. I had me a trick and a kick. Then I thought that I could decipher that message. Mm. And I think what she gleans from the message is that there's no one here. Mm-hmm. No one at all. There's nothing here. So if it, it's interesting that you bring up Mark and that thing that he said to her because basically he's saying he's making her come to the realization that there's no there's nothing here yeah i almost read or understand decipher as 
I couldn't hear what you were telling me until I got there myself. Mm. Like telling someone something doesn't do any good. Mm-hmm. You have to learn it or figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. So maybe she continued to live out this pattern or get into other unhealthy relationships until finally she got to the point where she was able to really understand what he had already said to her. And maybe that only happened when there was literally no one there. Right. <laughs> when she had no one else. Mm-hmm. If I'm wasting all your time, Maybe you never learn to take. Who's she talking to? I feel like on this very, very personal album, this is one of possibly the most personal moments where I almost feel like we're given pieces of conversations that actually happened yeah. and someone may have said this yeah. to her. Okay. Like you've been wasting my time. all my time. Yeah, for sure. What do you think? Yeah. So I'm wondering, again, looking at this, if we were to put quotation marks around wasting all my time, does it continue? Maybe you never learned to take as in he's saying that to her. Cause I've always looked at it as her saying, well, maybe if you think I'm wasting your time, you never learned to take from me, but maybe that's all part of the same thought. Like he's saying you're wasting all my time and you never learned to yes. take. Like I was offering everything to you and you could like never accept it. Like it wasn't. Oh, I get it. So he's saying to her, by not taking what I have to offer, you've been wasting mm-hmm. my time. Like I've been giving myself to you this entire time and you were more interested in being self-destructive or whatever it is that you've been doing. It's remarkable to think that it might come from that person, the other, the man. Because mm-hmm. I've always taken it, and I think most people do. If I'm wasting your time, it's because you never learned to take what I was offering you. Putting the blame a little bit of this, the destruction of this, of what we were on the other, on the other person. I've always, and, and that's where it becomes like an angry song to mm-hmm. me. It's, it's in the chorus here. But to think of it that way, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. And if I'm hanging on to your shade, I guess I'm way beyond the pain. Can I just say that? You know, obviously I had the lyrics when I got the album, but the way she pronounces it, it so sounds like hanging on to your charade. Charade. <laughs> I always thought shied. S-H-Y-D-E. Mm. You sound like Nell. You're shied. Like a shied in the wind. Shied in the wind. Shied in the wind. Chicka pie. Shied. Tie in the shied. <laughs> um, beyond the pale is an, a British phrase, meaning outside the bounds of acceptable behavior. Mm-hmm. Outside the box. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Beyond the pale. But it's, I think there's wordplay sh- between shade. If you if you hang out in the shade, you don't get any sun. Mm-hmm. If you hang out in someone's shade, you never get your own color. They're getting the sun. You're in their shade, in their shadow, never being seen. So there's a few oh, ways to take this. You read hanging on to your shade as being in someone's shadow? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Not just being in someone's shadow, but hanging on to your shade. Like wherever you're going to go, I'm going to be in the shade Mm -hmm. because I'm hanging on to it. Mm -hmm. And you can walk 10 steps to the left and I'll be hanging on 10 steps to the left in the shade. And shade means what? In the security of your presence. Mm -hmm. I was going to say safety. Safety. Like this relationship or you're you're safe to me and on some level you're protecting me Mm -hmm. and I'm not having to be honest with myself or do or confront things that are difficult for me or even figure things out because you're always, I can kind of always lean on you to do that for me. When she talked, there's that quote where she talks about, I relied too much on him. He relied too much on me. Mm -hmm. This is coming out here. I've kind of always 
heard that as if I'm still looking to you for security and protection and I'm still willing to do that, then I'm almost like beyond the point of no return and like there's no helping me. Like I'm beyond oh. the pale. Like I still haven't figured out how to untether myself from this and stand out on my own or whatever. Southern men can grow gold. That always seems like, a, I know it's not a misprint, but I always wanted to, like, grow cold mm -hmm. makes more sense to me. Yeah. But all right, grow gold. And why specifically Southern men? Again, like, not, not to get too caught up in exactly who the real figures are that we're talking about, but we've had a very specific Northern lad, mm -hmm. and in this case, a reference to Southern men. So who might she be talking about? I don't want to take it back to our ex, Trent. Trent's from New Orleans, right? Whatever, he's in New Orleans, right? Somehow. I associate Trump with New Orleans, yeah, because okay. yeah, because of that's where Downward Spiral was recorded. Great. And... Southern men can grow gold. So if he's the Southern man, or if the trick is a Southern man, whoever the trick may be, can grow gold. They can weave gold out of hay if you're Rumpelstiltskin. Mm. They can make something out of nothing. They can look magical. That's interesting, but it's almost like she was sold, sold a bill of goods. Like th there was an illusion here, or... You know, like yeah. he sold her some magic beans. God, how do we always end up going back to Trent? I had no intention of doing right. that when well, we sat down. But of course, like something like Blood Can Be Pretty takes me back to all the quotes about messing around with like the princes of darkness yeah. and the guy, you know, all of those guys. And, I think like, that goes the pain to what you were just that saying. She was drawn to and guys who hurt themselves, whatever. Yeah. yeah, I think it goes to what you were just saying. Like she was sold a bill of goods. Mm -hmm. She went towards an attractive thing or towards something that she thought would be what she wanted or that looked like everything she wanted. And turns out, yes, he was purdy, and I think purdy is spelled that way because he's Southern. Mm. And yes, he was purdy, but blood can be purdy. He can look like a delicate man, but he can be blood. He can be something that mm. something that only comes out of you when you hurt. You know what? I have a lot of regrets in my life, but moving towards the top of my list is the number of conversations we've had about this album that lead me to believe that Trent is much more present on it than I ever thought before. Yeah. <laughs> that just bugs the <laughs> crap out of me. <laughs> Anyway. You were sold a bill of goods. I was. Blood can be purdy, like a delicate man. It's interesting, too, that she doesn't really eviscerate him. She calls him a delicate man. I feel like whoever the southern man is that she's talking about here, he's an ex-lover or whatever. Maybe he's the trick or maybe he's not, but he's not an asshole. She's gone through the compassion stage, and she still refers to him as a delicate man. Is the southern man or the southern men, are they the same as the delicate man? Are those two different things? I think they're the same. I think this is a verse about one person. What do you think? Yeah, I'm thinking. I almost read it as blood can be purdy like a delicate man. Like a delicate man is something that she's not as drawn. I don't know. Like it's almost dismissive. Like, yeah, I could, I could see why that might be interesting. But a delicate, sensitive man is not where I am right now. I'm wanting, blood. for whatever reason, I'm indulging in someone who's going to, yeah rake me across the coals or so how do you take that, that back to blood can be pretty like a delicate man like kind of seductive like being seduced by the blood like something i played around with for a while but i wasn't ultimately that serious about or like a delicate man mm -hmm. so you're taking it as like a light and a dark like two separate entities yeah kind of mm -hmm. and like i'm tasting both of these things and trying mm. you know what's the best fit for me or 
Oh, I love that. <laughs> Tasting the blood. Yeah. She's talked about matching the lipstick to the blood at the corners of her mouth. She had to choose Shiseido. I know. When I dab the corner of my mouth, it's always cheese. Gross. This to me is everything. You ready? Yeah. Before Maybe I should let you talk first. But I was just going to say this line sort of clarifies can grow gold a little bit better for me because uh-huh. we have, you know, metals mm-hmm. and elements. Mm-hmm. So gold, copper, steel makes more sense. A little precursor to bang here too. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Just read through the table of the elements, Tori. Right. Yeah, you're right. Gold, copper, steel. In researching the song too, I looked up the metals and their what they represent in spiritual alchemy. Hmm. Um, and copper represents experiences with love, sympathy, affection. The world would be a harsh, bleak land without the refining influence of copper. Copper also uh, refers to a woman. Women are described as copper. Venus is copper. Mm. Copper also has a reddish tint. It does. Which I can't help but think of Tori as the fiery redhead. Right. And maybe there's a reference to copper there. Copper. Interesting. Copper is ruled by the planet Venus. Copper embodies the nurturing aspect of women and their youthfulness. It is associated with matters of love and lust and symbolizes characteristics like charisma, feminine beauty, artistic creativity, affection, caring, and balance. It is also considered a healing medal that teaches about living a fulfilling life. Now, my interpretation of this line... God, I love it. So in my interpretation of this line, I suspected that that's what copper meant. So that's (laughs) why I looked it up. Because the way I take this line, steel is unbreakable, right? So either we've gone from feminine beauty, love, compassion, affection, to steel, something hard and unbreakable, or something unbreakable and strong. Whichever way you read steel, we've gone from copper to steel, reduced to a hinge that is faltered. So a hinge on the door that just lets you in and it lets you in and it lets you in and it never keeps you out. The hinge is broken, the door swings in only. You can only come in. I keep trying to keep you out, but you just keep coming in and coming in to the point where at the end of it, she's screaming it basically, that lets you in, lets you in. Like she is over it, but the hinge is broken. She can't stop him from coming in again and again and again and again. We've gone from charisma and love and affection to something sturdy and strong to now it's just a broken piece of metal holding a rusty screen door opening again and again and again. That's my interpretation of that. I think you got it, lady. Thanks, girl. <laughs> no, but <laughs> the plot thickens. I mean, after saying, I, you know, maybe copper is associated with Tori the redhead, then we go on to read it. <laughs> Honestly, these notes are fresh off the, you know, hot off the press, folks. <laughs> Eve made some additions that I hadn't seen until we started this conversation. Yeah. So I had no idea that the next line was going to be, copper is ruled by the planet Venus. I mean, come on. We couldn't make this stuff up. Right. <laughs> This thing writes itself. (laughs) Done. But in terms of, you know, maybe copper is the feminine element or copper is a stand-in for Tori. Fascinating because steel is also an alloy not found in nature. That's a combination 
of two things mm-hmm. that result in something stronger. So it's like me and you in this relationship, I'm stronger, but it's almost like a false strength and I need to find that on my own. And in the meantime, I just keep letting you in because I'm afraid of what that might be like. Yes, because she's gone from the feminine, the charismatic, the youthful to part of something stronger to now nothing but the brokenest piece of metal you can imagine, Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. the hinge on the door. Or maybe the hinge is after the breakup. Like I went from copper to stronger with you, a relationship with steel, and then all these self-destructive relationships. I became a hinge. That's great. With with this revolving door of men, the lonely parade. Yes, (laughs) girl, the lonely parade. Of course, being an old demo from the YKTR era. Patreon. Yeah. Yes. This. It never even occurred to me that it wasn't just the one guy that she's letting in because that's my life, and my relationship to the song. In that line, it's letting the same person back in to hurt me again. And again, I can't. I'm powerless to stop it because I need something Mm -hmm. from it. But then also, yeah, you're right. Man after man, the door just keeps opening and opening. I can't. I need. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. There's a need there that won't let the door shut. She needs that boy blood. Yeah. (laughs) Or And the door doesn't swing the other way. It doesn't let them out. Mm -hmm. Just lets them in and in. God, that's amazing. And it doesn't swing the other way because they never let her in. Oh. There's no way in. Use that fine. Let's talk. You want to talk about the background vocals? Yes. You can tell me it's over. It's over. You can tell me over, over your shoulder. You can tell me it's over. It's over. Come in Houston. You know what's funny is when we talk about the bridge to this song, I feel like live versions have sort of supplanted the album version for me. And because she never performs the something's just keeping you numb bridge, she pulls out the you can tell me it's over and she really emphasizes that and sings it repeatedly. So to me, that became the bridge of the song. But on the album, it's really... I don't want to say buried, but it's like the bridge that wanted that should have been. That yeah, it was the bridge for the yeah. song, but she. So it's almost like she rectifies that when she performs it live. Yeah. But to me, that's such a powerful, important part of the song that Hugely I almost forget important. that on the album, it's the second layer, which is lyrics. why I think she buries it because you know she always hides the, her favorite songs are the B sides. She always cuts the most personal songs. Mm-hmm. I think this is like the heart of the album. This is why this is the climax actually what I I talked about there's this is it. This is the fire being unleashed. You can tell me it's over. It's over. It's mm-hmm. over. And performing it live, she vamps on it more and sometimes it gets crazy, you know, and mm-hmm. it obviously is the fire for her too, I think. Kind of like I was saying about wasting you've been wasting all my time, which I feel like is almost a direct quote from a mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. that two people were having. I kind of feel the same way about this line of you can tell me it's over. It's over. Like someone actually yeah. said that and that like it's so naked it's and bare and honest. I agree. This is a quote. And the reason she repeats it is because they've said it many times and mm-hmm. they've said it finally like it's over. We're done. It's mm-hmm. over. And that's where it's like sinking in finally mm-hmm. because they've said it so many times and they've mm-hmm. had to say it so many times. And what do you think of over, over your shoulder? Is that her being cheeky? Like, I'm not even hearing you like over, over your shoulder, whatever, or over your shoulder, like I'm looking, like it's over and I'm looking backwards. I always take over your shoulder as I meant nothing. It's just something you tossed behind you. Mm. That's how I've always taken it. Mm. And when I scream it and I sing it to my ex-lovers, mm. that's what I, mm. that's how I mean it. 
You got it, boys. I guess I think of it as literally looking backwards. Right. Like it's over. and You're already moving on from me. You're looking back over your shoulder at me. Mm-hmm. And there's an early version of this song, which I guess there's like a DNA strand of Apollo's frock in there and maybe a sort of fairy tale where she says, losing you in my rear view. Mm-hmm. And then in fairy tale, that becomes till you lost me in the rear view. Right. There's definitely like a looking back, uh-huh. like you're fading from, or I'm fading from you or mm-hmm. you're fading from me. And I think no, no matter like the length of one's relationship or how, you know, enmeshed you were, if someone's breaking up with you at the end of the day, there's still a place where you can say like, well, I guess I meant nothing to you then if you're so able you're and willing to on. move on. Yeah. yeah. Come in Houston. Referring to the Apollo 13 accident catchphrase, Houston, we have a problem here. So that's a come in Houston, Houston, we have a problem. Mm-hmm. Come in Houston means I'm going down. Mm-hmm. I'm, I need help. Mm-hmm. That's a cry for help, I think. So there's a little bit of a space motif happening here, maybe, because we have satellites coming up. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, space theme. Mm-hmm. And hey, Jupiter, let's get... Let's take that to Hey Jupiter. Sure. So Hey Jupiter, mm-hmm. satellites mm-hmm. come in Houston. And I wanted to die a little bit at the very top of the show when we were reading through all the places that this song has appeared. And one of them was, of course, the legs and boots in Houston. <laughs> she <laughs> Amused by it. her own cleverness. Well, she can't even stand it. <laughs> <laughs> but songs mean things to her. And you know, when she performed it live, she was like, come in, dramatic pause, head turn, Houston. <laughs> oh, I bet I can see it. Oh, I was—I would have been living oh, for God, it. God, I had to get to Texas. Another round of the chorus. Another establishing of I'm wasting your time. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Something's just keeping you numb. And is she talking to herself? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I kind of don't think so. You kind of think she's talking to someone else? Yeah. The man that told her she is wasting his time? Mm Mm-hmm. I think if something's just keeping you numb was she was directing that as herself. Are there any other moments on this album where you think she's called herself out on her own shit in such an obvious way? I I kind of don't think so. I think this line is to her self. And I think that's the turning point because the next chorus, the perspective changes. I think she is acknowledging that Mark or whoever said, you'll never gain weight from a donut hole. You're, you can't expect to go through these men that mean nothing and get something out of nothing. You can't expect these beautiful creatures that, you, that have no substance to give you any kind of anything that you really need or are looking for. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like she's looking at herself and saying, and that's why it had to be here, maybe, is because something is keeping her numb. I don't think it's necessarily self-effacing or calling her on her own, maybe calling her on her own shit. Mm-hmm. And that's why she could never perform it live. She was like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> I don't need to. What was I thinking? Right. 
<laughs> I was way too hard on myself. Right. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> you know, because she wasn't anymore. By the time she started performing at live, she wasn't dead anymore. She wasn't numb anymore. She was in a healthy, which ended up in a healthy relationship, which ended up being long term. But I mean, that's interesting because, you know, on songs like Baker Baker, she has said, I've always been sort of critical of men who couldn't be there for me or give me what I wanted. But in that instance specifically, there was a time when I was emotionally unavailable for whatever reason. So maybe, maybe something's just keeping you numb is directed at herself. Like there's something about me, traumatic past experiences, whatever it is that I never learned to take. Something's keeping me numb and this guy is giving me everything and I'm over here looking at something more self-destructive and I'm not able to maintain this healthy relationship for whatever reason. It might not even be her voice. This might be the satellites talking or someone from space or some third party that is not anywhere else in the song. Kind of like the omniscient observer in Pretty Good Year in that bridge. This bridge obviously existed independent of the song and fit in here for a reason. And so maybe it's not her talking to herself, but someone talking to Tori and saying Mm -hmm. something's keeping you numb because it feels like it's from another world. Almost Mm -hmm. the guitar comes in, right? That crazy moment, the sound changes. And I hate to say it. It's like so literal. It almost makes me want to roll my eyes at myself, but the guitar is a a male instrument and a male voice. And I think Tori has used it that way in her music that it represents like a male presence and Mm -hmm. the way, like the way you just described it, the guitar really comes in thrumming to underscore that line. Like maybe it's a a male voice delivering. I don't know. So let's take it from the other side. If something's keeping him numb, maybe before in my life, I thought something's just keeping you numb was directed at him because I relate that to, you can tell me it's over your shoulder. Like it meant nothing in that way. It's angry. It's like kind of lashing out at him in those three different ways. Something's keeping you numb. I'm over your shoulder. You never learned to take, but now that I'm older and now that I've been through it, I think that it's a lot more about getting yourself to a place that you can be whole and have a healthy relationship. You told me last night you were a son now with your very own devoted satellite. I almost feel like whoever this guy is, that he was maybe threatened by Tori's success and to feel good about himself he needed to be the caretaker or he needed someone who needed him a devoted satellite if you will someone just kind of orbiting him and he was able to find that with someone else i think that's right on and she's almost bitter about it like really like that's what's gonna make you happy when i was offering you this and i'm running my hands down my body (laughs) i gave you all this and really what you just wanted was kind of someone who's like oh you're so awesome but you know what i mean yeah (laughs) well i also take that too a little bit like what a sad outlook on relationships too that one has to always orbit the other and in that way the cycle just plays forward for him also maybe that's not fair in the sense that that's not an authentic or honest commentary on that relationship but it's just like when someone else has moved on and you haven't yet and they have the new person like you're never going to say anything positive like oh she's great amazing you're going to be like oh great you found some like sycophant to worship you right good luck with that (laughs) yeah Yeah. happy for you and i am God, we've all been there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except for the happy for you part. 
<laughs> yeah, I feel like I've been happy for people. And also part of me wants to see them be miserable because then it kind of proves that yeah. they were what was wrong in the relationship or they well, were the problem. Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't identify with this sentiment, but it's not because I want someone else to be miserable. It's because I'm jealous of what they have because I want it too. And it's like, yes, I'm happy that you have that, but when, when is it my turn? I love it. Two sons, too many, too many She spells it in the lyrics, you were a son now, Mm S-U-N, but here she says two sons too many, S-O-N. I can't help but think that this is a biblical reference on some level. Oh, well, yeah. And that it's spelled two sons, S-O-N, and that Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's sons, and that Cain killed Abel out of jealousy. So I have to think Abel fires is also a pun of some kind. Well, interesting. We have a quote that supports that, David. We do, again, I should have read this before. I know, you should have. We, I'm like, oh. Rachel and I put a lot of work into this. <laughs> this is from Spin, March 1996. Tori says, Donut. That's so much to me the ache of, I think one of the most important lines in the entire record for me was, you told me last night you were a son now with your very own devoted satellite. Happy for you, and I'm sure that I hate you. Two sons, too many, too many able fires. There's the Cain and Abel reference. There's the idea that you can't have two whole beings together, and I couldn't live like that. And it made me really sad that whether it's a female relationship or a male relationship, we're not supporting each other to make a whole. When I'm not happy when you are taking you as far as you can, I can't support that or I withhold from you because the truth is I'm afraid you aren't going to need me anymore. That's great. We should be a whole, yet we're two separate sons. But we should also be whole as individuals and together because you don't want two people. Like the worst thing on earth is that Jerry Maguire quote, you complete me, right? You want two whole beings who are able to bring that wholeness into a relationship, mm-hmm. not people who need to derive their meaning from from, from being together. Yeah. yeah. Interesting that she says that comes on the heels of there's the Cain and Abel reference. There's the idea that you can't have two whole beings together because one will inevitably kill the other. I'm not sure like what's, I'm not sure how that sentence, yeah, what's the link in her mind when she says that, but. Yeah, one will inevitably destroy the other. Mm -hmm. Um, There's another quote about this section. You want to read that one? Phone interview with Kay Horowitz of the Daily Iowan, 30th October, 1996. Is there any particular message you try to or would like to give to your masses? And at the same time, what message or gift do you give yourself through your music? And Tori replies that I'm enough and that you're enough, that there is nothing more you need that makes you more than that. Well, I think we get there at this point in the song mm. that I'm enough because the next chorus. You've been wasting my time. time. She comes to I'm enough. Again, I, that's why I think you're right that this was a quote someone said to her. You've been wasting Because she makes it clear you've been wasting my time. Mm-hmm. Said really aggressively. Which then becomes the whole point of the song, is her coming to this realization. Don't make this all about me. You suck as well. You'll never gain weight from a donut hole. Funny looking at things printed here and diving in deep, as we do on the show, that it comes literally full circle back to the beginning. There's a roundness to this song, Mm -hmm. almost like a donut. You could say (laughs) that we're back to the beginning here, the first lines of the song. Yeah. 
but it's said completely differently in a different yeah. tone. There's almost like a, a key event that kicked off the events of the song or the epiphany of the song or the realization she reaches in the song and she's back to that point. And like we sort of gently land back into that, mm-hmm. but she's looking at it from the other side. And it's said as a statement this time. It's not, it's not a question. You'll never gain weight from a donut hole. There's a period at the end of that sentence. Mm-hmm. And she seems to accept it or understand it now where she never did before. Mm -hmm. That you won't get what they can't give. Mm -hmm. If they can't give it, you're not going to get it. You're not going to be happy if this keeps going like this. That's remarkable because this is literally the exact same lyric from the beginning of the song. But there's something about either her delivery here or the journey that we've taken throughout the song where I totally agree with you. It's being said to her Mm -hmm. the first time. Mm -hmm. And this time she's saying it Mm -hmm. or she's in agreement or an acceptance like oh right it's a testament to her power as a songwriter and a Mm -hmm. performer the journey that she takes on this song that we take with her by listening to the song even and by screaming the song out loud as you may or may not have done that you for example (laughs) get to that point where it's like you're right it's very healing wow what's your favorite lyrical moment david it's an embarrassment of riches, but I and I, I like keep it simple. You can tell me it's over over your shoulder. Like it's so naked and honest and sad. And who hasn't felt that way? Yeah. I'm going to go with copper to steel to a hinge that has faltered. That lets you in, lets you in, lets you in. <laughs> That's my favorite. Obviously my favorite lyric and my favorite per- vocal performance on the record. Yeah. Can we get that again, please? Let's you in. So you mentioned earlier an Apollo's Frock connection, and I want to explore that a little bit before we get into the musical breakdown. I want to explore the Apollo's Frock connection. It's funny because there's a break in 99 where she stops putting out original music and she puts out Strange Little Girls. And so there's a long period of time between original material and Scarlet's Walk. And then Venus, she also talks about being kind of rushed. And we know, and we'll get into the history of her record deal. Inspired, inspired, but like (laughs) the songs were born, you know, like while she was doing this B-sides thing. So it's not surprising that songs that are bubbling around this time now end up way later, five, six years later on a different record. Mm -hmm. So the Apollo's Frog connection is real. Let's play this from 120 minutes. It's going to blow your dick off.
I just want to say something about this era. That was 120 minutes from January 21st, 1996. And we're not going into the live section yet. We're just going into the TV appearances. But my thought is just the honesty and the rawness of these performances. Mm -hmm. Who goes on television not afraid to bury your heart, to throw your heart out there on TV in close-up? to be raw yeah and it's amazing that that platform existed like that that was not a, a brief performance or mm-hmm. a truncated performance mm-hmm. she sort of you know improvises on the piano at the beginning and it's all there mm-hmm. it wasn't i mean there was like the regis and kelly too where it's like um can you make putting the damage on a two-minute version yeah but she got to like do her thing for six minutes mm-hmm. on tv that was amazing mm-hmm. inspired and she brought it yeah, yeah she sure did here's again uh, an Apollo's Frock reference. This is a lot of Apollo's Frock. And this is from Two Meter Sessies on January 25th, 1996. So four days later. I don't know how it works for her if, if she's coming up with it in the moment of these television performances, if that's mm-hmm. when it's coming or it's something that's been circling in her head. And if she's like working it out or what's going on mm-hmm. necessarily, but it is coming out here. So you can imagine that thematically the two songs are connected. And and crazy to me, this is January 25th, 1996. The mm-hmm. album has just come out mm-hmm. and she has just said that she cut 35 songs for this album. Mm-hmm. And then week one of yeah. promoting this album, she's, she's like, here the, here comes some more. Yeah, like, I ready? Know. <laughs> it's great. God. This is Two Meter Sessies, January 25th, 1996 with a little bit of Apollo's For a Hawk. amazing god i love her <laughs> we I should do a her. show about her we should <laughs> um, too niche i don't you, know <laughs> um we want to read that quote from the dallas observer june 12th 1996 and oh. this is talks a little bit about the apollo's frog connection june 12th our friend audrey knee's birthday hey audrey hey audrey um part of what disgusted her was the cyclical nature of fucked up human interaction <laughs> as well as her own role in it wow dallas observer at first you react to the anger by hurting both yourself and others going on until everything falls apart I would allow myself to be defecated on and then go out and defecate on someone else, she admits, claiming to have broken the spiral by substituting accountability for reaction. I see how it is now. And instead of going off somewhere, I'm dragging your balls to Antarctica. No mittens. Right now, my romanticized view of relationships is changing, she adds. Not only that, but my concept of myself, my heart, 
my relationship with a soulmate, all that. There's not a resolution in sight, it's internal. Anger is an important tool, but anger without heart is just a lot of noise, like two elk in a field fighting over a piece of dough. Just as an interesting quote to put here, it's not the only song that she kind of threw in a donut song. She also threw a little bit of shocking ribbons undone. Let's play that. There's an early TV appearance where she, oh no, this was Modern Rock Live on the radio, where she does a little bit of Ribbons Undone before Donut Song. So I really love this version too. This is February 4th, 1996. What are we going to hear first? I'm not sure, Tom, but... Really? I, okay. By the time that I figure it out... of ribbons undone ever <laughs> so what are the link between those two songs god knows i want well you know we can always look at girl you'll be a woman soon yeah, i guess like girl she's growing up yeah but it's clear that tori you know she landed on this thoroughbred pony thing and she was like i like it i'm gonna file that away right, for hold god on knows it. when yeah exactly <laughs> And since we're in the TV appearances section of the episode, let's play a couple more. This is from CBS This Morning, February 5th, 1996. This is the next day. So she's doing this song a lot on promo. So this is CBS This Morning, which is also where we pulled that soundbite from the very beginning of the show. You told me last night you were a son. Too many able fires <laughs> You've been wasting all my time This time I think you never learned to take This is from VH1 And she does do the numb bridge hmm. I guess I'm way beyond Let's take a break. Let's play Yanta's cover and 
talk a little bit about the Muzak. Muzak. I think that intro starts out so unassuming. It's almost like you're in for a little love song. It's beautiful and and just kind of quiet. It's strange how clearly I can remember that 120 minutes performance and how that primed me for what I expected the album version to be. And I can still remember being surprised by how little lead up there is to when she starts singing by the simple, almost one note, playful intro to the song. Yeah. I feel like we say this almost every time, but <laughs> Tori's compositions are so breathtakingly beautiful that I gain new appreciation for them every time we hear these instrumental versions, and I wish we had instrumental versions of everything. Something we didn't talk about in the line by line is the yearning, which seems to be ever-present on the album. And in this song, given voice in the guitar, but that yearning is just kind of a thread that just lives there. The yearning for yourself and yearning for what was and what could be, that's in there. And if I'm to know I don't know terms necessarily, but the directness of the playing in the chorus says something to me about the impact that this moment has on her. So if it is something he said to her, it kind of punctuates that. Mm -hmm. The beginning of the song is delicate. So it's almost like we're tiptoeing our way into this conversation or confrontation then like the the punch kind of lands in the chorus. sounds almost atonal, you know, like she's just hitting it and letting it out. Something that really resonates with me about that whole section is just the complexity of the playing and the complexity of the melody. Like it's not just easy to follow and there's a lot of layers to it. There's a lot of things happening. Do you hear women on the hands of men in slates opening and cows? I hear milk jugs, okay. water jugs. <laughs> my eyes are up here.
completely, I mean, it ends very abruptly almost. Just kind of like, and we're done. Back where we started. Kind of like she lifts her hands off the keys and mm-hmm. we're just done. Um, let's talk a little bit about this quote I found from the Village Voice in February 1996, February 13th. Someone says, note how Amos melodically quotes Moon Age Daydream in the chorus of Donut Song, which is a David Bowie song. So we're going to play a little bit of Moon Age oh. Daydream to rep. And it, there is a, I mean, there is a, I like a, an homage or a quote uh, is how they reference it. But here's a little bit of Moon Age Daydream and see if you can hear it. it i do but it's so subtle it totally is yeah but yeah i like that the word quote like an artist to quote someone else mm. i have a hard time processing that because then we jump ahead to american doll posse and that's <laughs> don't like, start with me no i'm not starting anything we don't suddenly jump ahead but to american such, doll posse that's such an attempt to emulate that sound maybe because she does refer to it as her ziggy stardust yeah period. of course but we don't just jump that is from literally Pele. a glam rock album I we don't, don't jump from pele to bald doll posse we go through <laughs> a lot to get there we leapfrog boys for pele boys for pele boys for pele baby <laughs> donut song has actually always been one of the harder songs for me to try to understand um even since my first listening to now it's one where I have trouble grasping exactly what all is happening. The only verse that I really ever feel able to gleam a lot from is the third verse of you told me last night you were a sun now with your very own devoted satellite. That's the only time where I'm able to understand the biblical reference of Cain and Abel and the concept of a sun with a satellite orbiting it creates this image of the feeling of maybe slight resentment for who we become when we try to merge ourselves with other people and having to reconcile these feelings, having to deal with sacrifices of the self. And I think that's one of the better lines on the entirety of the album, actually. And it offers a lot as far as building an understanding for the song. And I know it was one of the last ones recorded on the album, despite not being at the very end of it. And I think you can definitely feel that so far as it feels like a lot of the maybe emotional pointedness that is present throughout the rest of the album at this point has kind of maybe not so much dissipated, but collected itself into a reformed and very knowledgeable sense of self-understanding that I think makes this one of the most mature songs on the album in a very subversive and interesting way. Tour All Year, our private podcast exclusively for Patreon supporters at the $5 level and up. In this episode, we sit down with Paul Roy Taylor, a lady I respect and admire, and not only for the vintage harpsichord she keeps flaunting in front of us. Paul Roy has been hiding in the smoky corners of the tour scene for years, keeping his nose and his vape out of trouble. If you look back at the pictures, you'll see Paul Roy anywhere and everywhere Tori Amos has been, except those pesky meet greets. Like, they were probably like 26, 27, like this old. 
bisexual, to me at the time, yeah, yeah old, um, bisexual couple, like male and female, who like scoops me up after the show and took me to a bar. What? Yeah, I don't know how they got me in there. Like, and I, I remember like the bar was like, you need to get this child out of this bar. <laughs> because you look like a child now. I, know, I can't so imagine what you talk. look like at 16. For immediate access to this and other exclusive content, head over to patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus and become a subscriber today. It's November 2018, and this is Tour All Year. Hi, everybody. We're back. Hi, David. Hey. How was your break? <laughs> it was... Uh, you look I, refreshed. Do I? Yeah, those bags under your eyes just went away. I wasn't offered any gum, I can tell you that. <laughs> I put in a piece of gum and David has a problem with it Not for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are on the line with a donut song... Super hole. That's what I'm gonna call him. No, it's not, um, that's, that's not very flattering. A donut song. Super fan. About that. <laughs> Anthony Methvin, ladies and gentlemen. He's a theater director, performer, critic, and attender from San Diego, California. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Hi there. Hey, boys. Um, we're so happy to have you on the show. Anthony first emailed us. I would say like a year and a half ago. Like when you get to donut song in a month or two, have me on. <laughs> Did you even remember uh, that you did that? Oh, <laughs> like regretting absolutely. it now. <laughs> I've been waiting. I've been doing nothing but waiting by my computer. <laughs> um, Anthony, so tell us about your love for Tori Amos. When did you discover her for the first time? Oh, my God. I was probably around 13, 14. Um, and my god sister, Mikey, gave me the Crucify EP. And it was like something unlocked inside me. I'd never felt that way about a singer, a musical artist at all. It was like someone just had a key to something, some well, like deep inside me that I didn't even know existed. And I got, I got little earthquakes. I got under the pink. I was in Tallahassee, Florida at the time. So uh, I didn't have access to a whole lot of stuff otherwise. So I just, I got the two albums and I poured over them. And it really, it really felt like the first musical artist that I made a conscious choice about loving and she that that's who it was for me all the way through the next couple of years uh well i mean my entire life <laughs> but especially but especially those first years those first the first like four albums especially were so much a key to who i was what who my identity what my identity was as a person as an artist i love that that takes me back totally because i came in also in the little earthquakes era and just like this strange woman with this strange music that was unlike any other thing that you could hear at the time. It wasn't, I was also like right before tour, I was listening to Paula Abdul, you know what I mean? And Sophie B. Yes. Hawkins. Totally, Obsessed. totally different. Yeah. Describe to us when you got Boys for Pele. <laughs> so what happened was I was at that point, uh, 16 and I had not gotten a car yet. So my Nana, my grandma, she picked me up from school and uh, she had to stop at Walmart. And this was back when music release dates were Tuesdays. So we went to Walmart on a Monday after school so that she could do some shopping. And I was like, you know, I, I'm just going to go look. I wander into the Walmart section on that Monday. And lo and behold, some blessed idiot decided to stock the Tuesday releases on a Monday. And I, my mind was blown because this was back when Tori was still getting played on the radio. And I had listened to Caught a Light Sneeze over and over and over again, a million times, learning a completely different set of lyrics. <laughs> and what, 
what I wouldn't give to have written down what I thought the lyrics were before I actually found out <laughs> what the true lyrics were. Most importantly, was it noun or verb to you at the time? Oh, noun. boy. Noun. <laughs> you can continue then. <laughs> so I, I mean, he up... was 16. He can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked up a copy on that Monday, and I was so elated and thrilled. So, you know, go home. I'm pouring over and pouring. And then I realized... Oh my God, all the other people that are as obsessed with Tori as I am who listen to the same radio station that I listen to that played alternative rock and played Tori Amos totally want to go to this Walmart and pick it up. I'm just going to call the DJ and I'm going to tell them that they should send everyone over to the Walmart so they can pick it up early. So I call the DJ and then the DJ ends up calling the poor people at Walmart alive on the air and razzing them about, I think they, they razzed them about having put it out early and how they did a bad thing. And the, the poor folks at Walmart probably thought they were going to get fired over it. <laughs> and I felt terrible, but I got over it very quickly and just kept on listening to the album. <laughs> Narcs for Pele. <laughs> did you immediately but connect with Donut Song? I, I think there was something about the album as a whole, like the journey of it, the storytelling of it, that felt so different and expansive in such an exciting way and I think because I had lived so much in the world of piano that was in the first well especially the earthquakes but it sounded so it was like her palate just exploded and there was something so so exciting about hearing the 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 pianos and the harpsichords and these crunchy funky guitars that that felt like even a step beyond what had happened on pink and and it it was just so like all of my synapses were firing. They didn't even know how to respond to it. And I even feel like, especially when I was younger, I was reacting to I was reacting to the songs in a in a completely different way. Even going back today and looking at Donut Song again, I think the perspective that I have twenty something years later has completely changed the way that I look at really all the songs of the album, but really looking at this line by line and really thinking about it, the way that I feel about it now and the way that I react to it now is completely different than when I was 16 or even like mm -hmm. even in my 20s. Because for a long time, it was like my go-to feeling feel song. Like if I was in a breakup, I would just put, strangely, Donut Song on. I would luxuriate in those moments that are the layered parts of you can tell me uh, it's over, it's yeah. over. And and just feel that that just wash over me and now looking at it from a different perspective from the way i feel about it now it it doesn't feel about someone who's like soaking in in sadness it and feels like someone who's coming to peace like an understanding with something that's past or passing i love everything you said i want to know kind of when that changed for you or did you realize it just kind of all of a sudden like oh or is it just that it, your perspective has changed? Uh, there's something beautiful and bittersweet about the song. And I think there's this kind of pulsating, almost like aquatic quality to it, that before it felt like something it was very easy to kind of let yourself drown in. And kind of listening to it as an adult, kind of on the other side of relationships, the, those things that before felt like it was something to drown in, uh, like the things like that kind of really great honey crinkly guitar. I don't know mm -hmm. how else to mm -hmm. describe it. And, and the the way that the bass moves and 
the way that the piano moves, it, it feels like it's propelling you. So it's not about like kind of being underwater and kind of like embryotic within something. But as I've grown up, like the feel of it has changed in this moving inevitably towards, right? So that it's about, you know, constant forward motion and moving outside of something. To me, it's become more about looking at someone in the eye and being able to look at them and go, I understand. And it's not about me kind of like wailing about my pain. Mm -hmm. And it's not about pointing the finger. It's like looking at someone and seeing the truth of a shared experience and going, this was painful. And neither one of us is coming out of this unscathed. But I understand, you know, a lyric that I always go back to, and I think it's so brilliant just in its kind of simplicity, is, you know, happy for you, and I am sure that I hate you. Oh, and I name. think when you look back, when when you're like a teenager, and it really is about, ah, fuck you for what you've done to me, there's mm-hmm. like that happy for you kind of feels like sarcastic. Yeah, you know, like happy, happy yeah. for you. And then you come to a, a kind of a more grown-up place where it really is, no, I can be happy yeah. for you, and also hate you. And yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Those things can live in tandem within yeah, that's the cool. way that you feel about a human being. And it's a truth thing. It's not It's not with a wink. It's not very astute. Like, is the donut song kind of like the more mature Cotylite sneeze almost, where she can sort of see what role she played in this or one yeah, can see? Uh, or? I think so. And I, I think even if you just listen musically, there's a kind of prickliness to Cotylite sneeze. There's like a jangle to it that feels unsettled. Mm-hmm. And then coming around to the way that Donut Song feels, it doesn't have that same unsettled feeling. It's coming to terms with something. So I do think in a way that they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and bittersweet is the perfect way to describe Donut Song, I think, for sure. Anthony Methvin, ladies and gentlemen, he is an actor, writer, director, and intellectual from San Diego. He's also producing associate <laughs> at Diversionary Theater, and he is the man who single-handedly brought music pre-sales at Walmart to a screeching halt in Tallahassee, Florida. You can follow him at Anthony Methvin on Instagram. Take a look at his pictures. He's very handsome. Thank you so much for being on our show, Anthony. Thank you. It's been a joy, legit. Thank you. This conversation was nutritious, satisfying. <laughs> I think Eve and I definitely gained weight from a super hole. <laughs> Anthony, would you like the song as much if it were called Beyond the Pale? No. <laughs> and there you have it, ladies Fair and gentlemen. Enough. She made the right choice in changing the name of the song. <laughs> you know, what's fascinating, though, is there's something really cool about kind of the mysterious quality of what it's what and why. Why does it have to do with it? The, a donut, whereas I think Beyond the Pale is kind of on the nose. So I think it's actually kind of smart that she switched it up. Agreed. It kind of makes you lean in. And and I'm comfortable with the donut song being the dolphin song's older sister. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good night, Anthony. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, boys. Bye. 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 Of course, that was just a small portion of a longer interview. You can find the whole interview on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos. Um, and for now, we're going to play a cover of Donut Song. This is Pauline Paisano's cover. And we'll be back with George Porter Jr. Oh, 
one of the people on your record, I would like to tell you, I'd like you to tell me, actually, how he came to be on the record. It's, it's George Porter Jr. from The Meters, one of the funkiest bassists in the world. Right. I love what he does. I love what you do. But I would not have thought to put you two together. How did that come about? Well, um, we were listening to different bass players. And, um, you know, I was getting so frustrated. And I almost went with one. And Eric actually said, Tori, this is not what you said you wanted. I mean, Eric is great for that. He, he like, has the patience of a rock. And he said, um, I think we got to keep looking. We've just got to keep looking. And we asked the drummer if he, you know, loved to play with anybody. And he said, well, I've never played with George Porter Jr., but I would love to. We said, you mean George Porter Jr. from the Meters? And it was like, yeah. The only, the only George Porter Jr. <laughs> so we called him and got him the record, the first record, and he came up and he heard the new stuff and goes, well, I can play to this. There's some funky stuff here, girl. <laughs> so we, we hung out. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back. And on the line, we have George Porter Jr., the legendary bassist and singer of The Meters, a funk band he started over 50 years ago. Beyond his work with The Meters and his other band, The Run-In Partners, George has worked with many other legends, including Patti LaBelle, David Byrne, and of course, our Tori Amos. Hi, George. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. Thank you so much for making the time. Uh, thanks for having me. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you first learned that you were a musician, learned that you had the gift, um, and how and what that was like as a, as a young kid growing up. You're from New Orleans, right? Uh, yes, I'm from New Orleans. Um, well, it, you know, at, at the age eight, uh, my mom always knew that I wanted to be a musician or I wanted to be involved in music. Um, her choir director at the St. Catherine School, my mom was in the, in, the, in the choir there. And he told her that she should get her, children, her son, her two sons interested in music, you know, just to keep them off the streets, you know, of New Orleans. And mom agreed with that. And um, so she introduced us to violins. And my dad um, wanted to assassinate both us and mom um, <laughs> with the violin, <laughs> the, the violin stuff. Uh, so that didn't work. So then a few years later, I think it must have been around the age of eight, my mom gave me a, a guitar for uh, my birthday present. Well, it was Christmas slash birthday present because my, my birthday is the day after Christmas. So I used to always get half of my, my present on Christmas, not half on my birthday. And from there, it was just, uh, you know, me um, really very interested in playing and, and, and moved and move through, the, through the ranks, you know. When did you move from guitar to bass? And would you describe yourself as primarily a bass player or just a musician in general? I kind of um, apply myself as a musician. I definitely earn my living playing bass guitar. I used um, the guitar to um, for, for songwriting, which I am starting to do more of in the, in the last probably 15 years. The transition from guitar to, um, to playing guitar to bass was a very easy transition because from 8 to 10, I was studying classical guitar. And... Um, and so, you know, in the classical guitar formula, you play in bass lines as well, you know, at the chord formers or, or the melodies. So it wasn't a hard transition, but it was probably, um, you know, six years later that I, I actually moved um, to bass guitar. 
1965, you were part of the original lineup of the Meters in, in its original formation. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about how that came about with Art Neville, the frontman of the group? Art put us together as, 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 a, as a unit to back him up as a, as a solo artist. He was, he was um, just been on the road with Aaron uh, supporting the um, Tell It Like It Is recording. And when he came home, he wanted to continue his, um, you know, his solo career. He was out on a tour with Aaron as a, as a like a tour manager, I guess. And uh, he went, you know, he came home and he wanted to take. So he got Leo Nocentelli, uh, a guitar player, and he uh, he recruited me from Irvin Bannister's band. And um, by then, I was definitely a bass player. We had, the name the Meters didn't happen, you know, for another almost. Two and a half years. You were working with the Meters, which was your own group. Now, when did you start transitioning into studio musician? Because by 1994, when you when you did uh, Under the Pink, you were you were a hot studio musician. You were working with a lot of people. Well, well, you know, Alan Tusad brought us into the studio, and 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 uh, I guess it was like late 60s, maybe early 67. And, you know, and, and he was priming us to be, you know, be his studio band, you know. And pretty much that's what we did for the next few years. Um, we recorded hundreds of tracks with uh, with Alan. Um, you know, a bunch of different artists from, um, from anywhere from Lee Dorsey to uh, Earl King, uh, to Patti LaBelle, to Robert Palmer, two records with Dr. John. So by 1994, you're a legend, not only for your own work, but for your just your prolificness in, in your studio work and, and being a studio musician as well. Um, how do you connect with Tori Amos? What's the beginning of that relationship? It was the drummer, um, Carlos Nuccio, I believe. Uh, Carlos called me up, and uh, I believe that's the session we did in, um, in Mexico, I believe, in New Mexico. Right, in Taos. Um, in Taos, yeah, okay. And... Um, he called me up and said that, hey, man, uh, this, this young lady, Tori Emmons, just um, wanted me to um, bring a bass player up to um, to do some overdubbing on her project. Um, so it was the first time I ever did a session where we actually played to existing tracks. I mean, totally existing tracks. The The album was pretty much recorded, and we just overdubbed you know to to what she played you know what was there mm-hmm. um you know, i found that very interesting i'd never done that particular type of recording before so that was pretty you know that was pretty interesting so in 1992 tori released little earthquakes which was essentially just her and her piano and she was on her sophomore record under the pink so she's you know, trying to stay true to that. You you played on uh, at least that made the album. You played on three on five different songs. You played on God, Past the Mission, The Waitress, Cornflake Girl, and Space Dog, um, and all of those were pre-recorded. Oh yeah, the, every every. I'm not sure. I, that's one thing I, I don't really remember because how many actual tracks we <laughs> I recorded. So you said you said I I recorded five songs on that yeah. record. Yeah, five of, okay. I, who knows how many you worked on that, you know, how do you two work? Do you play on something and then she decides like, oh, that that sounds great. Or you two work together on coming up with a line? No, no. She just kind of, you know, they, we were just given headsets and uh, and, and a, a click track to her piano thing, you know, because they, 
Tori, Tori had those things where she did her moods would change, you know, in the middle of songs, she would change her mood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we would have, we would have click a click track for the first section of the song be one tempo. And then another section of the song, you know, she would change her mood. And um, so we had to give us, a, they created a new click track and they counted us off into this new, into this new um, um, body of works. So, um, you know, so we had to deal with each one of the, each one of the sections of the song, of, of each one of the songs individually. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, it was, I mean, um, they had a, she did a great job of laying the tracks out, you know, how, you know, we, we weren't there, we weren't there, um, you know, trying to figure out where the temple is or how we get to this next piece of temple because it was all, you know, it was all counted out and, 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 and spelled out, to, you know, and so, the first 26, 26 bars of the song is going to be this tempo. And then that ball 27, that ball 26, at the end of ball 26, it's going to count you into ball 27. You know, we would stop and then we'd get a new click and it'll count it into mm -hmm. ball 27, you know. So, yeah, you know, it was, it was, that, that was the way we worked, um, worked for that project. Um, do you have any memorable experiences from being in New Mexico and Taos during that session or, or songs that stick out to you particularly? That you're fond of? I, I, I just, you know, I just remember, I don't, re you know, one of the things is that I don't remember much about the songs at this part. And I haven't, I haven't heard any of those recordings in, you know, in probably 20 years. That's nuts. Oh, uh, maybe not 20 years. Not, it's been, it hasn't been that long, but you know, a couple of years, maybe 15 years. I haven't heard any of that music uh, because in general, I don't listen to music. I, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn how to be a songwriter. So, I try not to listen to music right. and um, to allow, allow me to grow musically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's working a little. It's working a little. I'm, I'm doing better. I just remember just, you know, just with Tori, Tori and at that time, the engineer, uh, um, I, I can't remember his name, but I think he ended up being her husband at some point. Mark. Yeah. Yes. You know something? I want to say me and my wife went to their wedding. I believe. Really? Yeah. I and think it, we went. They got. They, I, I believe they got married in in and 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 what's that country next to um, England? Ireland. Ireland. I believe they got married in Ireland. I believe or something like that. Wow. I believe me and my. I, I kind of think my my wife and I went to that wedding. That's crazy. Well, because. <laughs> Between 94, so in 94, you're in New Mexico in Taos recording Under the Pink, and she brings you to Ireland to record Boys for Pele, which is the album we're talking about today, and you recorded uh, eight tracks for that album, plus numerous B-sides, um, including a B-side that she's released called Amazing Grace Till the Chicken, where you it's just you two jamming. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was looking. Uh, we were looking at that one this morning. Uh, um, so I said, well, "Where's where's the the, the chicken call song? The chicken song? We <laughs> couldn't find it. So that was that wasn't on one of the albums. That was a single. Yeah, that was a B side. A B side. And she actually did put it on the re-release of the 20th anniversary remaster of Boys for Pele. It is on the second disc now. Oh, okay, okay. But so what was that experience? So you've recorded the first album with her to a click track after everything was pre-recorded. Do all her recording sessions work like that with you or was there The first the first the first two were. The first two. The first were? two. Uh, uh um the, I believe the very last one the um 
the uh, Chorus Girl Hotel, I believe it was mm-hmm. called. Mm-hmm. I kind of had um, mentioned that, oh, wow, you know something? I believe that, how did that work? I can't remember now, because I remember there's a different drummer on, on this on this session. Right. I don't so think it... Carlo, I think, I don't think, I think Carlo had, had a falling out with front office or her front office, and, and he, um, he didn't get to be on this session, on that session. So I believe that it was just me and her recording together with a click track oh, wow. without a real drummer, without a real drummer. And I think they replaced the drum, replaced the click with a drummer that came in later. And I don't remember, I never met that person, so I don't even know who that was. For the Choir Girl Hotel, it was Matt Chamberlain. Matt Chamberlain, okay. And it was Manu Kache for that Boys is- for Pele. Oh, so you know, Carlo wasn't all boys for Pele either. No, he did Under the Pink, and Manu Cache did uh, Pele, and Matt Chamberlain did Choir Girl. Okay, well, Carlo started the, the started the, the boys from Pele, and then I guess it didn't work out. His tracks were replaced because we did those. We did the, he was on that session for a while, but then I guess his stuff must have got replaced. Uh, because it's he's not listed in the in the in the, in the line of notes. Cause I remember, I mean, I got I got on these sessions because of Carlo. Carlo brought me in on these things. Right. When you were recording Voice for Pele, do you remember? Um, be, did you go to Ireland, or did you do most of your recording in New Orleans? Or no, I was. We went to Ireland. You did go to yeah. Ireland. That's awesome. We went to that. To, to that, I believe that's a home studio down there. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. That big. Yeah. Crazy thing by the water. Yeah. 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 And what were those sessions like? You know, now you've you've been to New Mexico with her. Now you're in this wild green place. What's what was that like? Uh, well, you know, it, it was it was exciting, but you know, I didn't get to enjoy much of the surrounding areas uh, um, because we were in there intensely working. You know, she's um, she's a worker girl. She likes working. <laughs> you know, she like she likes playing. You know, and, and not all the time necessarily is just playing is is work. You know, it's, it's just. It was, uh, it was saying, yeah, see, many, many sessions, parts of the session got added after I left because he wasn't, you know, I think the Carlo stuff didn't, wasn't working for them because Carlo did those tracks with me originally. And then, you know, and I'm not sure how many, how many tracks are on the session and if they had to replace me on, on. I know, oh, you know, so did she, didn't she come to New Orleans for Bars of Pele and do some stuff in here? She did. She ended up doing uh, yes. some re-recording in New Orleans. Yeah, because I, I remember replacing my bass line on a couple of tracks that Manny had done his tracks on that, you know, my original bass line didn't work well with. Oh. So I remember re, re, re-redoing re, those bass lines. Oh wow, that's crazy! At least at least two or three songs. I'm that's, not sure how many, but it might have been like minimum two. I know I know it was more than more than more than one. That's that's great. That's something we did not know. Um, so between Boys for Pele 1995 recording sessions and the 1997 recording sessions, which took place in Cornwall, England, what was different about the way you recorded that third album together? You said that before you'd you'd had tracks that were kind of completed, and that you would put your stuff on top of it. Um, but in 1997 recording, she's recording in a different way in her new home studio. What was that like? Uh, as I remember that one, uh, the drummer, the drummer and guitar player was, we all played pretty much did almost that whole record as a band, as a band playing, you know, so the parts I was playing, you know, 
influence what everybody else was playing, when everybody else was playing influence what I was hearing. You know, so we, you know, we, um, we recorded uh, as a band. And um, so it was, um, I don't remember how many tracks I ended up playing on, on that record either. I'm not sure if I did the whole record on this part of it. You have five tracks on the record, plus a couple mm-hmm. B-sides as well. Um, was there ever any talk of you going on tour with her? Because she that was her first tour with the band. Yeah, the uh, the, the tour thing was, was, was talked to me, but I believe uh, ended up being the guitar player. I remember I remember being spoken to about touring, but um, was was not uh, as readily available to tour. Ah, I see. Uh, um, um, what well, you know, it, it, it's, as as the way they would have wanted, I have probably would have had dates. I don't exactly remember what it was, but I remember that I remember being asked, and then you know, saying, uh, you know, I'll get back," and probably didn't get back soon enough. I've done that a bunch of times. <laughs> You're a busy man, George. Hey, by the time, by time I called back, I said, oh, man, we didn't think you wanted to do it, so we called somebody else. Oh, man. The angels are going to come in, George. <laughs> well, my wife said, one day you're going to learn. <laughs> <laughs> um, so beyond just the change in recording with her on the 97 record, but beyond just how the difference in the recording session, what is it like working with her as a producer? How does she... How is her production style different than, say, other people that you've worked with? Well, it would depend on the projects, you know. Uh, um, you know, when as an artist, uh, uh, she she you know she knew what she wanted. Uh, uh, she pretty much kind of you know pointed you in directions. You know, she'll say, "Well, you know, I don't I don't particularly like that part of what you're playing," you know, and uh, uh, and. You know, so she would, you know, suggest, make suggestions of another way to, to approach that part. But for the most part, she, you know, it kind of lets you do what you did, you know. Yeah, that's, that's the reason why you're here, because you can play. <laughs> Has there ever been a time where you heard something in a song that you had to convince her, like, oh, no, it's got to be this way? Or maybe she heard something in a song where she had to convince you, no, it's got to be this way? No, uh, in, in most cases, uh, I have I have done things that I have to go back, I, I wanted to go back and fix, yes. Uh, they liked it, and I wanted to say, oh, no, I, I, I couldn't live with, you know, <laughs> knowing that that's out there like that. Right. Um, whenever I did something that she wanted to, um, she wanted to change, there was no need to convince. I was on her session, and if she wanted something changed, I'd fix it. When looking back on that whole experience, what would you say um, is your fondest memory of, of working with Tori? Her, just her smile, her approach to being uh, 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 an artist, the way she treated people. You know, she, she, treated, she treated everybody really well. She treated me especially well. She loved my wife. Uh, um, they got along so well. Uh, um, they were really good friends. And when my wife passed away last year, that's one of the things I forgot to do. Well, actually, I had, I had not been in touch with Tori for years, so I didn't know how to let Tori know that that had happened, you know. But... Um, mm-hmm. But they were really close. I'm sorry to hear that, by the way. Oh, tell us a little bit about the wedding. I don't remember that much about it. <laughs> I remember the girls had a wonderful time. I I was probably bored. <laughs> <laughs> my wife, my, my wife um, brought her girlfriend with her. Um, Tori, when we, when Tori invited us to the wedding, and and 
when Tori was in New Orleans, I believe she met um, Deidre. Deidre cook Deidre cook um, gumbo and stuff for uh, for for Tori at our house. Oh wow! So she invited um, Deidre to the wedding too. So so my wife and Deidre came to the wedding and with me and um then the girls they hung out they you know they hung out and and had a good time. The girls had a great time. I. I'll find a corner somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Typical boring husband, you know. Well, I was I was a sober person, so I didn't drink, so it was nothing, you know. Uh, I, you know, I was uh, I was like absolutely the the most boring person at the party. <laughs> George Porter Jr. You can find him online at georgeporterjr.com. You can also check out the Meters and his other band all of his other projects on iTunes. You can purchase those tracks. Please do that. George, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This was great. I hope that you and Tori can get back into a studio again soon. That would be wonderful for all of us. Thank you, sir. Okay. Have a wonderful day. You too, George. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Of course, that was just a small part of a longer interview. You can find the rest online at patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos, where you can check out our entire archive of unedited interviews, uh, bonus episodes. Check it out, patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos. Here's a little bit from The Meters, one of my favorite songs, Fire on the Bayou. canned biscuit dough donuts. You'll need two cans large buttermilk biscuits, peanut oil for frying, one teaspoon vanilla extract, a quarter cup cocoa powder, five tablespoons divided milk, two cups divided confectioner sugar, one teaspoon ground cinnamon, a quarter cup sugar, chocolate sprinkles, and colored sprinkles. Heat two inches of peanut oil in a large pot or Dutch oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. In a shallow bowl, stir together the sugar and ground cinnamon and set aside. In a small bowl, whisk together one cup of confectioner sugar, two tablespoons of milk, and one teaspoon of vanilla extract. Set aside. This is the vanilla icing. In another bowl, whisk together one cup of confectioner sugar, a quarter cup of cocoa powder, and three tablespoons of milk and set aside. This is the chocolate icing. Lay out the biscuits on a cutting board and with a one and a half inch round cookie or biscuit cutter, cut out a hole from the middle of each biscuit. Fry them in oil until golden and then flip with tongs to fry the other side. You can even fry the donut holes. You can even fry the donut holes. George is an angel, isn't he? An angel, George. And the angels don't know this one, George. Uh, How's your church, Eve? <laughs> did you go to, anyway, did you don't go to you, church? Aren't you sad that you missed that? I am. David, damn it, you got to quit your job. I know. <laughs> we have made it to the live section. So happy. This is one of the songs that remains my favorite on the album and my favorite 
live. Really? For me, if she plays a song, it is the centerpiece. Unless for some reason she's also playing Hotel in Zero Point in that show and Snowblind. Never lets you down. Never lets me Isn't down. Isn't there a version of the song where she says, don't you let yourself down? We'll get there. So she's played the song a total of 209 times in her career on tour. Um, do drop in, of course, taking the brunt of that number. <laughs> 109 times she did it in 1996. Isn't that crazy? It is. And I was going to ask you about that. Because as this tour started and went on, I was even then a little surprised at what songs were staples. Mm -hmm. Aside from horses, obviously. But what we got pretty much every night was Not the Red Baron and Donut Song from this album. Mm -hmm. If you were to ask me ahead of time what songs I would expect to be played every night, those would would not have been the two. That I we also guessed. got pretty much Cod Light Sneeze every night. No, yeah, I guess. And Tallulah. No, no. Tallulah took a long time yeah. to debut. What would you have thought would be the staples? Well, I mean, I guess Hey Jupiter was, but some of the more showy ones, like Blood Roses, even Professional Widow. Hey, she played Mr. Zebra like two times. I know. Crazy. I agree. Damage was not, I mean, it was there, but it wasn't an every night type of thing, so... Even Little Amsterdam was more of a staple. But I think it's interesting that clearly indicates what song she feels the most connected to or that most represent the album or maybe just what she enjoys playing. But and also, what, yeah, what she enjoys playing yeah. and also what she's going through in that moment. Mm-hmm. But and Donut's, also requests. You know? Yeah. But Donut and Not the Red Baron on Do Drop In were there almost every night and then they both disappeared like three quarters, mm-hmm. maybe even halfway mm-hmm. through. Yeah. So, okay, so let's listen to the tour debut. You ready? You can't. Because uh, the tour debut was in February in Ipswich at the very first show. I've been and there's no that for a while. You have fallen for it again, my can't friend. Wait till we get to plugged when there aren't any holes. Shall we listen to the first time it was played on tour that we have on tape? Yes. Okay, let's do it. This is Newcastle, March 5th. Um, the first time we have it on tape, but she's already played it six times before. And they haven't been recorded. Can you believe it? God, if we could do 96 over. Here's Newcastle. She's 96 is a strong year. This is March 18th, 1996. She did a television appearance on New... I can't speak French, but I think it's Nul Pas Au Lieu French TV uh, on the day of the Paris show, March 18th, 1996. And it's a wonderful video. And Caton's in it with her. Here's a little bit of that.
little French TV promo, David. What do you think? I love French TV promos. I'm actually not being <laughs> being crazy. My favorite performance of all time on TV is Past the Mission on French television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've told me that before. Yeah. You want some more donut? Yeah, just the whole. This is from the opening night of the U.S. tour. This is in Tampa on April 9th with a little story beforehand. Um, this record was almost finished. And uh, this little song started creeping through, which meant um, the guys couldn't go get Guinness. And they thought it was all over. And I said, um, um, excuse me, I hate to wreck the party, but this little song wants to come now. And they all went, oh, fine, good, great. But she came and um, she's like my favorite right now. This is from June 8th in Milwaukee, the early show, a little variation on the story that she would tell. So all the gear was packed to leave Ireland. The record was supposedly finished. And um, the guys were getting ready to go down to a place called the White Lady, which is where a lot of decadent fabulous. And um, these cute little Irish girls show up and my crew drools. And um, so they were off to find a shag and a Guinness. And uh, they actually deserved it because I had had them up at seven in the morning sometime. And will you turn my piano away? It's just like nag, 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 and I'm sorry. But uh, I kind of ruined their evening. Because, you know, girls, when you're not quite finished, you're just not quite finished. You can tell me, yes, you always do. You can tell me. This is Ames, Iowa, June 11th. Okay, this is cozy. This song doesn't make me feel cozy. It just pisses me off, so I'm going to sing it. This is a little improv from Los Angeles on June 28th. Um, Here we go. 
This is my favorite of the Donut Song improvs from the 96 tour. This is from Oakland, July 11th. I found from the Ball State Daily News, Bloomington, Indiana, September 17th, 1996, before the show. The writer says, tonight's performance will feature songs from her latest album, Boys for Pele. Pele, the volcano goddess, is a deity of female empowerment. Tomorrow, she will perform at Indiana University Auditorium in Bloomington. I think it's going to be a great performance, said Chad Bosworth, director of public relations at University Program Board. She's well-liked by students. I've gotten a lot of good responses. I wish we could have gotten a hold of him. Me Just to at least too. tell him it was a good performance. Yeah. That would have been great. What a strange soundbite. It's like someone's crazy mom is coming. Like, we're fond of her. We let her do her thing. She's fine. The bridge would also continue to evolve with a little improv. Um, here's October 30th, towards the end of the tour. Um, and listen to Steve Caton's flourishes. It's all really, really great.
Shall we get plugged? Ow! 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 <laughs> Little known fact, that's David screaming, ow. Ah. In 1998, she played the song 18 times on tour. This is the first time she played it in Atlanta, Georgia on April 20th, 1998. And it was really, really good. So notably, of course, the Something's Just Keeping You Numb bridge is back. Plus, there's like this whole middle section where Steve Caton is just going for it on the guitar. And that was really cool. My favorite version from the entire Plugged era is June 23rd in Frankfurt. This was also the very first bootleg I ever got from the Plug tour. So this was the version of Donut Song I completely fell in love with. And I think the bridge is just really, really great. So here we go. San Jose, September, I don't know the exact day, 1998, plugged. Well, first we have to consult with Oliver and see if he has it Oliver. In, his, in his files. We're going off the off the, off the the rails, mm, going off rogue. Script, off book. Off book, you're going off book. <laughs> As I so Oliver, do. Oliver, do you I have can't be contained. San Jose, 1998? Oh, he's, he's wagging his tail that he does. Okay, roll it, Ollie. Okay. 
That was the day after my birthday, September nineteenth, nineteen ninety eight. Yes, hmm. it was great show. The reason I requested San Jose was that was a great show, but it was also one of the worst nights of my life. Why? Because that was such a ridiculous leapfrogging of shows to drive all the way up to San Jose and then back to Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I mean, get ready for it. We're going to be doing it on in 2020. Oh, I can't. What do you say we go to Dallas and back, David? Please don't mess with Texas. It's a short trip because she didn't do it at all. Ugh. But she did do the bridges and intro to Cornflake Girl. That's not weird. No. This is Houston. Houston, 1999. To Dallas and back tour. That make more or less sense than Graveyard as an introduction to Cornflake Girl? More sense. There's no right or wrong answer. There is no right or wrong answer. Except there is you're wrong. It's music. Music <laughs> is fluid. You can do uh-huh. anything with anything. You can play any song and then play any other song after. That's true. It makes the people come together. Strange. We're now in 2001, and she did Donut Song 14 times on the Strange Little Tour. Here's the debut in Clearwater, Florida on September 29, 2001. Hmm.
I've said it before with songs like Father Lucifer and Sugar. Um, some of my favorite moments are when she's working out a section that'll eventually, you know, be something that we recognize. But my favorite moments are, you know, the performances where she's working out that section and it's it's variations are slightly different. So with that being said, this is Donut Song from October 3rd in Nashville when she's working out the the bridge, the part where that will eventually become Don't You Let Yourself Down. So maybe it's This is October 9th, 2001 in New York City. And finally, we land on October 14th in Wallingford, where she discovers something in the moment and I think she surprises herself you can kind of hear it that she's like wow this is this is a great way to say this and I'm gonna keep it forever You want to go on a walk, David? Mm-hmm. She did Donut Song 15 times in 2002-2003 with a tour debut in Camden, New Jersey. Here it is. Some days I can't get my feet on the ground Get my feet on the pedals Some serve to note that both in 2001 and 2002 she's doing the something's just keeping you numb bridge um, but what's interesting about the 2002 version is that she only does it solo even though she's on tour with the band um, it's not until the second leg that she does it with the band so about a third of those performances of the 15 were solo the last 10 were with the band and this is the first time she did it with the band this is Kansas City Missouri March 22nd 2003. 
In 2005, Tori Amos did the song nine times on both the original Sensuality Tour and the Summer of Sin Tour. Here's the tour debut of the song on April 4th in Atlanta, and I was at that show with someone I like to call Danica. I call her that because that's her name. Bold choice. In 2007, Tori Amos performed Donut Song 17 times on the American Doll Posse Tour, and she performed it always as Tori Doll. <laughs> if it wasn't Tori, who would it have been? Clyde. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that I mean, we like we make fun of it. Like, that's such a stupid question. Clyde. <laughs> and we know exactly <laughs> what the answer right. is. <laughs> <laughs> May 30th in Florence, um, just for the record. Um, you want to hear some more? This is so, a wild one. so full. This is top. Eat the Florence donuts. feeding me. Hear the donuts. Uh, powdered sugar. This is November 25th, 2007 in Houston. The intro is just amazing. I, I love this intro. And for those keeping score, on the 2007 tour, she did not do the Something's Just Keeping You Numbridge at all.
In 2009, Tori Amos performed Donut Song nine times on the Sinful Attraction nine Tour. Nine times. <laughs> Were you attracted to it, though? I was sinfully attracted oh to it. Oh, my God. It was so very sinful. It was so very attractive. But attractive. In 2010, Tori performed this song one time only in Italy on July 13th. And we got to hear it. We're completists here. This song does not have a string arrangement. Are you infuriated? It's never too late. Call your friend Phil. Gold Dust 2. On the Night of Hunters tour in 2011, Tori did this five times. Five times. Um, it's funny, though. She didn't perform it at all in 2012 on the Gold Dust Orchestral Tour. It's sad. I mean, <laughs> imagine the song with a string arrangement. It would have been great. Just like the swelling of the strings on you can tell me. Uh-huh. Well, anyway, that takes us to the Unrepentant Geraldine's Tour. 2014, and she did the song seven times. Here's May 10th in Glasgow. Upset that she didn't call the tour na- the Native Invasion. I was lobbying for uh, Bang the World tour. Oh my God, that would yeah. be a great Bang the World tour. Bang the World, Bang the World tour. <laughs> I love it. I like the Native Invasion tour. I thought like Native Invasion but it wasn't was... even called Native Invasion. I right? know it God. was called the Native Invader tour, and I thought Native Invasion was like the obvious choice. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, she did it five times, and here's the debut on my birthday. I remember what I was doing. At the exact moment I got the set list because I was doing tour all night. Anyway, this is Geneva, September 18th, the tour debut. I've been wasting all your time this time. Maybe you never learned to take. And if I'm on to you, Thank you. 
We did it. I haven't felt this accomplished since Tallulah. We're finally full. I would say this is an exhaustive probe into Donut's Hole. Anyway, here we are at the end of the episode. Thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, we adore you. Um, you can find us online on our social, at Songs of Tori Amos, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please head over to GoFundMe.com slash ALS-Relief-4-Nancy-Shanks, where Nancy is raising money for her campaign for some ALS relief. And if you donate any amount now until the end of her campaign, until she reaches her goal, we will send you a one-of-a-kind limited edition autographed beanie especially autographed by beanie special something so we can't tell you what it is it's cute so any amount gets you that so please check that out if you haven't rated and reviewed us on itunes please head over to itunes and rate us and please review us just tell us what you think of us unless it's negative we we don't need that in our (laughs) lives if it's positive please it will give us the strength to wake up in the morning Um, Head over to our website, songsoftoryamus.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. You can check out old episodes. Check out David's podcast, Don't Be Afraid of Your Dreams. It actually comes out weekly on Sunday nights or Monday mornings, and it gives me life. I love listening to it. It gives me, I'm serious, it gives me a boost in the morning of, like, self-confidence, and I don't know. David's really good at that stuff. What else, David? Um, I don't know. I need some voodoo. Oh, I can't wait for voodoo. We are going to be done with this album before Christmas. I don't... Should we just do it again? Should we start at the beginning again? Yes. Yeah. Do it again. Okay, we'll do it again. I don't even remember talking about horses. It was so long ago. Wait a second. Wait a second. Why? Anyway, (laughs) um, thank you guys for listening. We're so grateful for our listenership. Um, If you like what we do, please head over to patreon.com slash songsofToriamus and subscribe if you can. Um, Right now... There's plenty of thank you gifts out there at any level. We have Drive All Night Plus. We have Tour All Year. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamus.com. This has been Donut Song.